This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, June 29th, 2012. 74 of these episodes have been completed, and today we would like to thank our sponsors, igloosoftware.com, shopify.com, and MailChimp.com for making this 74th episode possible. Hello, John Syracuse. How are you? Doing just fine, Dan Benjamin. You fought, you made your flight. Let's hear about your flight first. That's boring. No, and people care. People care about you. They worry about you. Uh, my, my flight was canceled because they had some problem, in the, a fire in some building that's important to the flight control system for the East Coast. So they had to spread out the planes, as they say which involved canceling a lot of flights, including mine. So I had a nice five-hour excursion to the airport that resulted in me not leaving on a plane. And I was so pissed off because I managed to get through security without having to go through the, you know, groping line. I went through the metal detector. And then, of course, when I had to come back for my... The earliest flight I could get out uh, after the cancellation, which was two days later, I had to go through the groping thing. So you, you opt out of the... The X-ray machine. Yeah, I don't even like it. Like when you opt out now, sometimes they make you walk through the little scanner area. Yeah. I don't like that. Like, oh, they say the machine is off. Like, I don't know how much radiation. Oh, oh, so you're saying that you're saying that they make you walk. You have to walk right by it. Or through it even. Yeah. And they said, don't worry, it's turned off. Whatever. I like to go through the little security gate thing (laughs) to go around the side. Yeah. Okay. That's always such a hassle. Like, I don't, and it's like, there's no rhyme or reason. Like, if you know someone's going to opt out, it always takes a year and a day to get the, the, the groping people to come over. Like, you'd think maybe there's one, just one for the whole security area, but it takes them so long to come over. So you're just standing there twiddling your thumbs. And if you're with a, a bunch of other people, they just all have to wait for you. It's frustrating. Uh, Apparently, there's there some, like, some countries that they don't do any of that. They just do through some kind of intuition. Like they they they're very good at sizing people up and uh, yeah I think the the radiation sprayer things have been outlawed in European countries for health reasons or something but yeah like so they have the metal detector there too and they let they let uh, children and mothers with children go through the metal detector line but once you know I'm going to opt out just let me go through the metal detector line you know it's like I obviously you. that that's considered good enough to screen people and it's an alternative and it's sitting right there and you know but they're punishing you for disobeying their system so they say well you once you say you're opt out yeah we could let you go through the metal detector to save everybody time to keep the traffic flow going but instead we're going to make you stand in the security area for five minutes while some dude comes wandering over to grope you yeah so i made it i'm out here in sunny hot humid illinois i'm in my traditional illinois podcast studio aka my brother-in-law's house (laughs) sounds great yeah, no kids. It's quiet. Sounds really good. All right. We got a little bit of follow-up here. So we're building our way back up to a normal level of follow-up. This past few shows have not had a lot of follow-up. Uh, this show doesn't have too much either. All these shows are kind of like on the go. You know, I have to I have to formulate my notes, but they're not my normal size notes. I don't have as many topics as usual. It keeps you sharp, though. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to jinx it. I've been trying not to say this, but I'll, I'll maybe I'll, we'll see how this system will creep up on it now. I think this will be a shorter show. We've Ooh. had shorter shows. <laughs> you know, people love to 
to respond to that. You'll say, oh, it'll be sure to show. And it comes in you know, 180 minutes. Yeah, well, I didn't say that for the past couple of shows, and I have had shorter ones, right? Yeah. yeah. We came in. And just judging by the number of links that you have pre-added to the show, uh, there are fewer than there have been in past episodes. Right. So, yeah. I think I think we're going to do it. I think we're going we're to make this happen. The curse may be over. <laughs> All right, first bit of follow-up. This is from Gordon Shepard. He was referring way back to an episode, episode 68, entitled Patent Hands, uh, in which at one point uh, we were discussing that Microsoft video showing different amounts of lag in touchscreens. Uh, this, is, this is the same episode where you convinced me that my iPhone was actually really, really slow and unpleasant to use. Actually, it might have been the episode after because I think this is what, there was a piece of feedback from, oh. from someone who studies the brain saying how you know, your, brain, <laughs> yeah, right. your brain gets information uh, you know, m- long after it has already happened. So you're not even, you know, th- whatever you're seeing or hearing uh, has happened uh, in the past and you're, just exp- you're, you're constantly living in the past and projecting forward into the future. And so that was the episode where we discussed that, that there's lag in you, not just lag in the devices that we build, but also lag inside yourself. Uh, and so Gordon wrote in with a link that I thought was neat that I tweeted earlier this week. It's an IEEE Spectrum article. IEEE Spectrum is a magazine for, I guess, electrical engineers. Uh, my wife used to get it. I don't know why we stopped getting it. Uh, anyway, it's an engineering nerd magazine. And this is a story about a, a robot that plays rock, paper, scissors. And it beats you 100% of the time. And, and my tweet about it was that, that it beats you the same way that fathers beat their children in sports long after they should be beating them. You know, like when you're a kid, your dad can beat you in everything, right? And then you get older and you become more athletic and you practice and you think at some point, boy, I'll be able to beat my dad in whatever the sport you're thinking of is basketball, you know, baseball, tennis, whatever, whatever competitive sport you have. And you'll find out uh, that your parents will defeat you in this sport long after you think you should be beat. It's like, geez, my dad's 45 years old and I'm a 17-year-old kid and I'm on the basketball team and I should really be crushing this guy. And how do parents do it? How do dads in particular do it? They cheat. That's how they do it. <laughs> it's the secret, kids. And I, as a father myself, I've already experienced this. If, if the time comes when my son starts being able to beat me at certain things, I'm going to cheat. That's, that's the way it's done. How, do you, how so, would you cheat at, at something like, you know, if you're shooting hoops with your kid, how, how do you cheat there? Well, you have, you know, since you are the... Uh, like draw a foul or something? You're, you're the authority figure in this person's life. And so you can get away with pretending that, oh, that's not a foul. Or, you know, like basically <laughs> because, you, because you're the arbiter of like what is and isn't a foul. And you just fulfill that, <laughs> that authority figure role. So right. they won't that's question. not a foul. What you did is a foul. Right, exactly. And they'll, they'll grumble about it, but they'll listen because that's their whole life is... <laughs> Listening to you tell them things that they disagree with, but doing them anyway. It's like when you put a little chain around an elephant's leg when it's a baby and it, it thinks it can't break the chain. And then the chains that it could easily break as an adult still restrain it. I don't know where the hell that analogy came from, but sure, I'll take that. No. Where, where did that come from? Now, that movie, that uh, Disney movie, I think. What, is Dumbo? Yeah, because the mom could break the chains anytime. I didn't. I haven't watched Dumbo in a long time. All right, that makes more sense. I thought that you were just pulling out an elephant analogy. I thought maybe, you, maybe you're gonna have you're having a stroke in Merlin No, the, you know, the, maybe the, you need to lie down. <laughs> maybe I do anyway. Yeah, but so so how does it cheat? How does the robot cheat? Well, anyway, yeah, this is a rock paper scissors playing robot that uh, it, it's like it's a little robotic hand, you know. So it goes once, twice, three, and then puts down scissors, paper, or rock or whatever, uh, and it cheats because it has cameras that looks to see what 
you're going, what the opponent is going to do, whether the opponent is doing rock, paper, or scissors. And as soon as it recognizes the shape that the opponent hand is going to make within a millisecond, it makes its hand <laughs> do the winning <laughs> shape. And it happens too fast for you to see. You know, it's, it, it, so they have like, I linked to a, uh, this, the article in this YouTube video, and you can watch it. If you slow it way, way down, you can see as soon as the guy's hand starts to flatten out into paper, then the robot's two fingers go fling, shooting out into, and of course, <laughs> humans could never do that because it takes, you know, 10, 20, 100 milliseconds for the signal that, you know, the light to hit your retina to be processed uh, and even reach your brain. So it certainly can't react with them, you know, never mind how long it takes to tell your hand to make the proper shake. So there's too much lag in humans for humans to pull off that move. Uh, they have to rely on other strategies. The computer can literally brute force it and say, I will wait until I see what shape the other hand is going to make, and I will immediately react within one millisecond, making the winning shape. Oh, can can these robots play against each other? Uh, that's That was the question everyone said. Like, you put two of these robots against. I think both both of the robots would just end up going once, twice, three, and then landing without making a shape with their hand because they're <laughs> both waiting. They're, they're both programmed to wait until they see what the opponent that what shape the opponent is going to make and encounter it. And so if you have two guys that are both waiting to see what the other guy does, nobody does anything. <laughs> DC says, that's not cheating. That's just faster than you. Well, I, that, I would say that's cheating because the whole point of, of rock, paper, scissors, it, the game is supposed to be discreet in that you decide what you're going to play. And then you put out, you know, because human perception is as laggy as it is. The human strategy is to, you know, it's almost like you could play with slips of paper where you say, I'll write down what I'm going to play. You write down what you're going to play. We both put them in the hat and then a judge picks them out. Like, you know, you're supposed now my, to be now I, I will actually say that, that my four and a half year old son plays the way the robot plays. He's just much, much slower. Yes. So that <laughs> if he sees if he sees that I have scissors out, he will just put out a, a rock. I mean, he did. And there's nobody's being fooled. Not even he's being he knows that I know that he's playing it this way. But this is why my son always wins. Yes. Well, I don't think the the robot feels shame either. <laughs> right. The it's robot like can't be taught old, any lessons. Shame. <laughs> so I, I thought that was a neat story. It's in the show notes. Check it out. Uh, show notes are at 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 74 if you'd like to follow along. The next bit is from Brian Powell. He was listening to, this is actually a follow-up to Marco's show, but he's directing it to me. This is nice how I'm getting follow-up from other people's shows. Uh, well, they want, in, in some cases, they want you to weigh in. That's right. That's right. Some, a topic comes up somewhere else, and they want to hear what I have to say about it. So uh, Brian was writing about how Marco discussed how he would like to just support iOS 6. He's got lots of neat stuff in it, but he's got to stick with iOS 5. And you know, this is a, the eternal topic on Marco's show. When can I drop support for older versions of iOS? Because it makes my life easier as a developer. When, when can I drop support for those things? And... Uh, just use the nice, fancy uh, operating system that I want to use that has all the new APIs to make my life easier. And the problem is, well, you can't drop support for those older versions until all of your customers have devices that support the newer version. So like, he doesn't have a problem saying if you want to use Instapaper, you need to be running iOS version, whatever. He does have a problem saying, uh, oh, and by the way, you can't run iOS version, whatever, because you know the iPad 1 doesn't support iOS 6 or something like that. Uh, it, that's actually an interesting topic you should bring up next time he talks about this is that he's he's always like okay you know well i can't drop this because ipad one can't run it and a lot of my customers on ipad one well what about all the ipad one customers who don't want to run the latest supported version of ios on the ipad in general marco seems to say that well i don't have a problem with that i can say 
Well, you could run the latest version of Instapaper. You just have to upgrade your OS. And because your hardware can run this version of the operating system, I consider you supported. I bet he gets a lot of cranky emails saying, yeah, I can run the latest version, but the latest version runs crappy on my iPad 1 or my iPhone 3GS or whatever. So I don't want to upgrade to the latest version. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's where he's drawing the line. Uh, now, Brian Powell writes in to contrast this with Microsoft, what they're doing with their mobile devices. And as I don't think we discussed in this show, but if people who've been reading the news know, uh, Windows Phone 7 Phone Pro Phone Series 7 is the latest version <laughs> of Windows Phone 7 Phone Series for Windows phones. Uh, but Microsoft is revving it again and coming out with Windows Phone 8. And a lot of the device, I think is a lot of, I think it's all the devices that run Windows Phone 7 will not be able to be upgraded to Windows Phone 8. At the very least, this is the, the, the Nokia uh, devices that people have been upset about. Like Nokia was this big partner with Microsoft. We're going to come out with these Windows Phone 7 phones and we're very excited about it. And this is going to be Nokia's way forward. And this is a really tight partnership with Microsoft. And everybody buy these, the new Lumia phones. And they've actually gotten some pretty good reviews. I've played with them. They look pretty neat. They're, you know, they're, they're nice pieces of hardware. And they were running Windows Phone 7, which was the latest version. And so now Microsoft says, hey, we're going to come out with Windows Phone 8, and it's even better. It's much more awesome. And sorry, if you just bought one of those Nokia phones, you can't run Windows Phone 8. And so Brian says, this means a device released just six months before the expected release of Windows Phone 8 will not be able to run Windows Phone 8. Uh, and he, he brings this up because it's such a role reversal that... Uh, he said Apple is stuck supporting old legacy devices in some way, whereas Microsoft is willing to completely wipe the slate clean because they can. Now, Apple stuck supporting old devices. What he's talking about there is, you know, Apple continues to ship the iPhone 3GS. And so they had to make it so iOS 6 runs on the iPhone 3GS, like barely runs and you get half of the features or whatever. But uh, uh, Brian's contention is that Apple is now in the traditional role of Microsoft is saying, oh, well, you know, we can't abandon those devices because yeah, that's our free phone, free with contract phone. And we really want our latest version of the operating system to run on that phone, even if we have to rip out like all the headlining features, just so we can say, yes, you can run iOS 6 on the iPhone 3GS. Uh, you can't run it on the iPad 1 because I guess there's not as many of those people and it's not as strategically important for Apple to keep supporting that model. Uh, and so he's saying, here's, here's a case where Microsoft is in the traditional Apple role of just saying, tough luck, guys. Uh, we're not supporting your old devices. You bought a phone six months ago? Well, it's not getting our latest OS. Tough luck. Uh, and uh, uh, Brian asks, as Apple's user base grows and grows, especially in mobile, will they get stuck with the legacy issues that have bedeviled Microsoft with Windows for the past two decades? Will, will Apple become the company that is hamstrung by its own success that is not able to move on to make a cool iOS 7 because it doesn't run on the iPhone 4, which is, you know, the new version, the, the, the new oldest phone that Apple is supporting or whatever. Uh, I don't think that Apple will run into those difficulties because I, I, I don't think this is a situation where, where Microsoft is boldly leaving devices behind and Apple is stuck supporting legacy things. I think the Microsoft move to not, uh, not give Windows Phone 8 to Windows Phone 7 devices is a symptom of the dire situation they find themselves in. That they, you know, they had Windows Mobile, and before that they had WinCE and all these other terrible uh, mobile operating systems. And they knew that those weren't competitive. So we knew, God, we need something that's competitive. We need to do something. They did, they did the Microsoft Kin thing. Do you remember that? Yeah, they, sure. Yeah, like that was one 
dead end and they did Windows Mobile, but then Windows Mobile wasn't good enough. So they did Windows Phone 7 and that was supposed to be the new thing. But they said, no, 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 we really need to use the Windows NT kernel. It needs to be Windows Phone 8. We need to unify on this Windows 8 platform. Like they're scrambling to figure out what the heck their strategy is. And when you're scrambling, you're like, all right, that didn't work. Right now, forget it. Forget it. Forget it. We can do something else. Okay. You know, that didn't work. Now forget it. You know, and every time they do that, they're just like, chuck out what came before and just like, do something new. We got to figure out the thing that's going to actually succeed. And it would be death for them to stick with like, oh, we really believe in Windows Mobile. That's going to really make it. Or we really believe in Windows Phone 7. You know, they want to find the thing that's actually going to work and stick to that. And if it doesn't work, they're just like, okay, toss that aside and try something else. Microsoft is scrambling. And it's not so much that they're boldly trashing what's behind them in order to add, uh, progress their platform. They're trashing something that has not been as successful as they wanted, looking for the thing that's going to be successful. Apple has found the thing that's going to be successful for it, which is iOS, and they're trying to progress it as fast as they can. I don't think they're, you know, it, it's Apple itself that chose to keep the 3GS around. It's not like Microsoft where Microsoft's like, oh God, we have to continue to support PS2 mice and keyboards because those things are going to be around forever because we don't make the hardware. We don't control what they make. So we just have to support it. Apple decides oh, we're going to keep selling the 3GS for way longer than, than we think just because that'll be our free phone, right? At any point, Apple can say, okay, we're not selling the 3GS anymore. The iPhone 4 is the new bargain basement model. Like, they control their own destiny in there. And I think they're, they are advancing it at a normal pace for a company that has a successful platform. Whereas Microsoft is behaving like a company that does not have a successful platform and is, you know kind of taking advantage of the fact that they don't have a successful platform by saying, well, we can just trash this because who cares? All the Windows Phone 7 users, there's like 10 of them in the world. Like, who cares? They're insignificant. They're, they're insignificant compared to the number of potential customers that are out there that we would like to sell to. Uh, so I'm not particularly concerned about uh, this role reversal because I think the reasons for the behavior is very, are very different and the situations are different. I think Apple is still in control of its destiny and Microsoft is desperately trying to get some control over its destiny. Uh, but really, more than anything, they just want to make sure they find a platform that is successful for them. Uh, and until they do that, they don't have to be so concerned about their current installed base. All right. The next section of follow-up is about Surface, Microsoft Surface, which we discussed on the last show. Yes, we, we surely did. You want to do a quick sponsor since this might be a shorter show? Sure. Go for it. Okay. Well, our first sponsor is uh, MailChimp, but specifically... They have a new service out uh, called Mandrill. And I was talking to them yesterday and I said, how's, how's that going? How's Mandrill going? They said, actually, it became a much bigger product faster than we were uh, even hoping that it would. And that's what we're talking about. And uh, let me tell you about it. Um, Mandrill. This is smarter email for apps. It's a new way for apps to send transactional email. It runs on the delivery infrastructure that powers MailChimp. This is... Everything at MailChimp is used. Do you remember back in the day when, when Amazon announced S3 and that, well, we use this. Well, this is the same backend that, that uh, MailChimp uses, but they're making it available to you. So you have transactional email. This is stuff that, that's, that could be generated from your apps at all hours, any hour of the day. So they understand this. So they made it so that Mandrill has a mobile app. They've got one for iOS. We've got one for Android. And what does that do? It lets you monitor the performance even when you're away from your desk, wherever you are. You can see what's going on. You can watch the trends. You can see the deliveries on track. You can search and you can see, is email getting bounced? Are there rejections? Who's opening it? This is very important if you have an app that sends transactional emails. It's absolutely critical. Now, if you're listening to this and you're like, I have no idea what transactional emails are, well, obviously, you know, maybe this isn't for you. So just go check out MailChimp.com and send a newsletter. That's what we do 
But if you do do transactional emails, you got to check this out. Uh, and it's free, by the way. You can send 12,000 emails a month for free. If you get up to about 40,000 emails, it's nine ninety five a month. Uh, and they even have plans that go up to a million emails per month. And it becomes more and more and more affordable. And if you want a dedicated IP because you're worried about spam, that type of thing, yeah, you can do that too. Anyway, smarter email for apps. It's a, it's a new way for apps to send transactional email. They've got a wonderful API uh, and and this is a very very cool product that really does have everything you might want. And we're we're looking at it for our stuff too. So uh, it's easy to find. You just go to mandrel.com. Link will be in the show notes, of course. Uh, and uh, also check out mailchimp.com while you're there. Thanks very much, to those guys, for making the show possible. Is Man- Mandrel a kind of monkey? Mandrel is like a uh, I don't know what the difference technically between a baboon. I'm gonna I'll look this up. Uh, but there's a difference between a baboon and a, and a mandrel, but it is an old world monkey. All right. They're very, the bright, really bright face with the, they're kind of terrifying. Like if one of these was in your house, you'd just move. You wouldn't <laughs> would just write it all off. Someone in the chat room, John Rauch, Rauch, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, pointed to the old Joel and Software article about the two different camps at Microsoft, uh, which are the Raymond Chen camp and the MSDN Magazine camp. And Raymond Chen is the stand- Raymond Chen camp. Uh, Raymond Chen is a uh, old school developer at Microsoft who, and his big thing was, don't break people's software or backward compatibility oh, right, right, costs right. that type of thing. Uh, and the MSDN campus lets use all the new cool shiny things. Uh, and the reason I didn't bring that up. I, I thought of putting that in the show notes, but now that he mentioned it and I'm talking about it, I'll put it in the show notes anyway, is that I don't, I think if you had Raymond Chen, uh, oh, what, what his comment was, uh, you know, with the two camps of Microsoft, it's obvious which camp is running the latest Windows efforts. And I think he's implying that who's running the latest Windows efforts is the MSDN camp. Like, let's just go forward. Let's try the new thing. Who cares about backward compatibility? But I think if you put Raymond Chen in charge of Windows Phone, he wouldn't be like, oh, we can't break backward compatibility. We need to bring those Windows 7 people along because the Raymond Chen camp, his entire thing is pragmatism. And pragmatically speaking, it's like, yeah, we don't want to break people's applications on Windows when we have 90-something percent market share because, you know, don't rock the boat with this big successful platform. But if you've got a crappy platform that, you know, has 5% market share or something like that, he would be pragmatic and say, we don't need to worry about breaking their things because we want the other 95% of the market, that 5%, who cares, right? The, the, The customers that we don't have are so much bigger than the customers that we do have that pragmatically we can afford to, you know, if this thing isn't working and it isn't catching on, let's try something different and don't worry about how that the few customers we do have will react to that. So I think that's uh, that actually the Raymond Chen camp and the MSDN magazine camp would be uh, in agreement about what to do about Windows Phone. All right, anyway, back to Surface. Uh, Davis Scott has a little bit of feedback about this Surface tablet with keyboard attachment thing or whatever. And he says, Surface is not a tablet ultrabook hybrid. It's a tablet desktop hybrid. How many pictures are there showing the Surface being used as a laptop, meaning on your lap? None. And why is that? It has such a high center of gravity. One nudge and whoops. And he's kind of right about that. Like, you, do, uh, you they always show the Surface in you know in the picture is being propped up with the kickstand which is, and having a little keyboard cover in front of it but this is highlighting their you know the features that are different about the surface it's not just an ipad competitor look right. at this it's kind of like a little laptop but they don't show someone with it put uh, on your lap like i'm thinking of when i was at wwdc if i had a surface with me would that have solved my problems for typing and everything 
like would I have been able to bounce that kickstand thing with the floppy keyboard thing coming off of it? Would would that have been better than me uh, for me than a MacBook Air? I don't think so. And that's that's why uh, David's got a saying that it's a desktop replacement because when you sit back at your desk, yeah, then you can prop it up like that on a flat surface, but not so much on your lap. Now, I'm not sure how, how hard and fast that line is. We call them laptops, but I'm, do we really expect them to be used on laps all the time or are they used on flat surfaces like tables most of the time? Well, then, then the, the term notebook became more prevalent and portable computer. and Yeah. and Nobody's and, like, using laptops. Got, like usually, like in what kind of environment do you actually have to use your lap for a laptop? In any kind of work environment, normally you have some sort of table in front of you. Now, I, I'm, mine is situation was weird because I'm at a conference and those little conference chairs and you don't have any place to put your stuff. So maybe that does come up. But for a work or even home type environment, it seems like you would always have a desk available. But, but he's right that it has the same problem as an iPad on your lap in that the thing is very lightweight, but the majority of the weight is in the big vertical thing, not in the horizontal thing. Whereas in the MacBook Air, they try to put the guts and the battery in the flat part, and then the screen is very thin and light, and that pokes up. So uh, it's much more stable, has a lower center of gravity, whereas the surface, all the weight is hanging up there in the air, so it's precarious and it could tip over very easily. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that works out for people. Like once someone gets a service, do you bring it to the cafe, you set it up on the table and, and it's great and you love it or do you actually try to use it on your lap and you realize this is totally not going to work and it's just too, it feels too weird and too unstable and uh, I need a service. The same th- Again, same thing with the iPad. Even when you have like a keyboard, one of those keyboard cases or something like that, the majority of the weight in the iPad is in that big battery and that's sticking up in the air. Uh, and speaking of the surface here, this a couple of other theories about the purpose of Surface. I don't have this attributed to an individual person because a lot of people wrote in and tweeted uh, these various theories. So last time, last time I was just addressing Surface as face value. Here's this thing that Microsoft is making. Here's why they say it's cool. Let's talk about the hardware and the software and all that other stuff. Uh, and I talked a little bit about, oh, isn't this interesting that Microsoft is now making hardware, whereas before they weren't willing to do that. Uh, and so here are the two predominant alternate theories about why... Why is Microsoft making the Surface? Why are they making hardware, a tablet hardware, instead of using their traditional model where they make the OS and other people make it? The first theory is that the Surface is a shot across the bow of OEMs. OEM is original equipment manufacturing. That's uh, manufacturers. That's the three-letter acronym for the companies that build personal computers and other devices that run Microsoft's operating system. So they build the hardware. Microsoft sells them a license for the software, and they sell the entire widget to the consumer. Uh, and this is kind of like Microsoft saying, you guys better shape up because every time we try to let you guys make a cool piece of hardware, like remember when we were in the <laughs> Plays for Sure thing with our like digital music players, we said, we're going to make Plays for Sure, which is a standard that everyone can follow that will play music and we'll have a music store. And then all we have to do is let our awesome OEM partners make all sorts of cool hardware. And surely the umpteen companies that are out there that make hardware for us can together defeat Apple, this one company making iPods. And that turned out not to be the case. That they made there were lots of digital music players made. God, I wish I could remember the name of the Dell one. So it was like the Dell Juke or something. I'm getting it confused with those ugly Nissan mini SUV things. But there, there a whole bunch of companies did make music players for this PlayStation Store thing, and nobody wanted them because they were like too complicated, or they were ugly, or people they didn't have you know the the branding and marketing was not concentrated versus the the you know single unified push of iPod, 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 or maybe iPod just had a first mover advantage and got out there. But whatever the case, all these uh, OEMs making digital music players were not successful, despite the fact that, hey, they had an FM radio and they had 
you know, slightly more storage and they had more ports or, you know, all the, uh, a, a better screen or more buttons or all sorts of things that look good, you know, in specs the same way that the OEMs had defeated Apple uh, as, as far as they were concerned. Like, oh, we, we, we beat Apple because they can only make five different computers and we can make a thousand different computers. So if you want a computer that has these features and that features, we can make it cheaper and have more features. You get exactly what you want. Surely that will work with music players as well. And it didn't. And so Microsoft made its own Zune hardware and they said fine you oems didn't do a good job we're going to make our own we'll show you how it's done and by all accounts the zune hardware and software combination was much better than what the oems made and yet zune still died anyway uh so that was sad but the theory with the surface is saying you guys think uh this is what you're supposed to be making so you'd better shape up and make cool hardware you know make make good tablet hardware otherwise we, Microsoft, are going to make our own hardware. And then what will you think of that? Of course, the problem with this theory is like, you can't threaten someone and say, you guys better shape up or we're going to make our own hardware. Kind of like we just did, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's a threat. <laughs> you, you can't threaten somebody and then do the thing you're threatening before you even give them a chance. Maybe the threat was before that. You know, OEMs, you better get your act together and make awesome tablet hardware. Nope, can't do it. Okay, well, we're just coming out with ours. But So that's one theory, that it's, it's a warning shot to, to OEMs. Uh, the second theory is that it's, this is very similar to the first one, but subtly different, is that Microsoft is trying to establish a minimum standard for OEMs. Basically saying, okay, we're, we're going to make this thing kind of like a reference design. And you guys all need to make Windows 8 tablets that are at least as good as what we've made. Like, we're not trying to like really compete with you or anything. We're just trying to say, look, if you were thinking of making something, you know, Acer, or HP, or Dell, or whoever, like, what other companies are out there making things, you have to make it at least this good. And if your thing is not this good, just don't even bother. Just forget it. You know? And and the idea is that it's not so much a threat to the OEMs of something like a Microsoft saying, oh, we're going to sell this and you guys are going to be cut out of the loop. It's just kind of setting a standard. And a lot of people bring up the Google Nexus One. Remember the original Google yes. phone? Yeah. Android phone that Google sold directly to customers. Uh, I think it was like, you know, completely without a contract or was it without a contract? I don't remember. I remember you could buy it directly from Google's website. And it was yeah, kind I believe of that, that you had you had to buy it from them, didn't you? Yeah. That, and, and it was kind of like, you know, they said, that's kind of like what the Nexus One did because the Nexus One was this Google phone. This was the, the bare Android experience. And it kind of showed everybody who was going to make an Android device. Look, you got to make it at least as good as the Nexus One because this is kind of our reference design. And yeah, we're not going to sell a lot of these things. Uh, and we're really not trying to take your business, the HTC or whoever is going to make these devices. Uh, we're just trying to show you this is how it's done. Uh, meet this standard or above, and okay, now you're off to the races, but really not a threat to you. Uh, and I think in both these, for both of these theories, Google with the Nexus One and Microsoft with the Surface, I think they were and are both actually really trying to make an awesome hit product. Right? Google would have loved it if the Nexus One and it's sort of direct-to-consumer sales model took off and they sold a million of them. Google would have loved it. They would have been like, it turns out people love buying their phones right from Google.com and we're selling millions of Nexus Ones and up. Oh, sorry, hardware partners. We're just too damn good and everybody loves us and they love our phone. Uh, you know, <laughs> bummer for you. And then uh, Microsoft, the same deal with the Surface. If the sur- demand for the Surface is insane iPad-like demand uh, and, you know, they're, make, they're selling as many of them as they could possibly make, Microsoft's going to be like, hey, thumbs up. Finally, we got a hit in our hand. Finally, you know, whatever. Uh, But if the service doesn't sell that well, Microsoft can always save face by saying, well, we were always just trying to set a minimum standard. We were just always trying to use this as a warning shot across the bow of OEMs. I think that's all rationalization after the fact. I think both of these these products 
both companies were trying to make the best possible product they could. Let's make the best mobile phone we can. And I don't think there's any part of it where they're like, you know, holding back or sandbagging or saying, okay, well, we don't get, want to get those other guys angry. We don't, you know, don't worry, OEMs. Like, it's, it's okay. We don't really want to sell a lot of these service things. We're just trying to show you how it's done. It's a shot across the bow. It's, it's a minimum standard. In both cases, I think both companies said, we, won't, we want to sell a hojillion of these things. And if every single other OEM goes out of business, we don't care or stop selling phones. We don't care because we'll be selling millions of them. And that's what we want. And the only reason these theories come up is because they, people look back and say, you know, in the end, the Nexus One really was a pretty good phone, and it really did kind of set the standard, and so what that it didn't work out. And people want to rationalize for Microsoft's use of the Surface. Like, they're not really against their OEMs. They're just trying to say, you guys can make Windows 8 tablets. They're just trying to set a standard. I think they both want to succeed massively. Uh, and only when they don't will these other theories come. See, I told you they were just trying to set the standard. They weren't really trying to sell a lot of those things. They're trying to sell a lot of them. This is a big investment by Microsoft. It's a big PR push. They want to sell Microsoft service. Google wanted to sell Nexus Ones. It didn't work out for Google, but we'll see how it does. How long has Microsoft been making uh, hardware devices of any kind? Uh, a long time, I guess. They said, what did they say, like 30 years That's for their what first they said, what, or something like that? Was, it, was that what it was? Is that they're, they're calling hardware, computer hardware manufacturing, that yeah. they, mean, they mean the mouse that's, or the keyboard? Yeah, it's such a big company. It's hard to talk about Microsoft as a single entity because everyone yeah. pointed out, like, well, they made the original Xbox, and so that shows their deep manufacturing experience and just... But that that it's like a whole other department. It's like a whole other company, yeah. you know. And the same thing with the peripherals and like the people who are making the surface hardware probably have very little contact with the people who were and are making the mouse and keyboard hardware or the sidewinder hardware. And those in turn have very little connection or contact with the people who are making the Xbox hardware. And I think even the team that made the original Xbox, which was basically cobbling together PC type of parts and having Foxconn assemble them for them into this big gigantic box. That team probably even has a little overlap with the team that built the 360, which was much more of a traditional console with, uh, you know, custom contracted hardware shoved into a more game console size box. And we know how well that went for Microsoft. They had billions of dollars in charges for warranty claims on the, the problems with overheating. And, you know, so there's a big learning curve no matter what they're doing. I think they probably have things sorted out in terms of making mice and keyboard. I think they're almost getting things sorted out for making game consoles. But this is their, you know, there's no precedent for the Surface like we're going to make. I mean, there's very little precedent right. for making tablets, period. Who, who has made tablets like this? How many companies have vast experience making 10-inch uh, sized tablets that are like less than two pounds? Apple, Asus, Microsoft, a couple other companies. And the experience they have is measured in only a couple of years. You're like, well, isn't it just the same as building a laptop? It's not. And even laptops isn't the same as building laptops. Like Dell is an expert at building laptops. But when Apple came out with the Air, that changed the game. Dell can no longer have a bunch of interchangeable parts that it plugs together because the connectors and the parts making the pieces plug together won't fit inside the MacBook Air size case. So now they have to do custom designs or wait until there are parts available that's for them that fit into a smaller case. And they have to consider different manufacturer processes with machining and all that stuff. So the game has changed. Um, so I think... That's actually an advantage for Microsoft that they don't have that much experience selling tablets and making tablets and stuff. Nobody does. Like it's kind of a level playing field, with the exception of Apple, who's got the most experience. But even their experience is only a couple of years. Uh, and same thing with phones. Who has experience building these kind of phones? Nobody had experience building these kind of completely screen phones with the capacitive touchscreen making them thin. Like everyone's learning together. So this is actually, I think, an advantage to Microsoft, and that's why. I don't count them out just because they don't have as much hardware manufacturing experience. The only place where they're at a disadvantage where everyone except for Apple, I think is a disadvantage is that Apple not so much has the experience, but 
has the long-term contracts and has bought up like all the all the output of these other factories that make the screws or the glue or the glass panels or whatever the apple's you know reportedly like locking up all the flash memory it can get and people can't get screens because apple has spoken for all of them and people can't get aluminum machining uh tools because apple has purchased them all including yeah i mean how much of of the news you know, yeah i mean that news that came out when apple was oh apple is investing in this many screens and buying this many, how much of that do you think was just to keep other people from being able to do it i mean i'm sure that they used it obviously they need to use it but wasn't there maybe a secondary motive which is like no this this, this stuff is going to be ours well if if you're like apple and you have been supply constrained on so many of your products for so long like ignore totally ignoring competitors you just say look this is not the way to run a business if you are supply constrained you have to make moves to make yourself have more supply because you could be making you could be making more money people want to buy your thing and you can't make the things fast enough we need more manufacturing capacity so they buy more manufacturing capacity and then there's still supply constrained and then, so you know it's just totally ignoring competitors and say look we need to have more capacity. We need to. We'll buy you a factory. We'll build you a factory. We will. We will buy every single screen you can make for the next X number of years. We will buy all your flash RAM, all of the aluminum machining tools that maybe that ends up being on the critical path. It's like, well, we could build more factories, but these machining tools are expensive, and there's only two companies that make them, and uh, you know you've already bought all of them. So okay, well, well, we'll buy them for the next three years, build the new factory, and make us more machines. And so then when some competitor comes strolling in, they're like, we would like to machine aluminum too. That looks kind of cool. You know, you don't have exclusive rights to machine aluminum. We'd like to make our laptops or whatever out of that material. And so you go to someone and say, can you, you know, we've designed a case out of machine aluminum. Can you manufacture this? They say, sorry, our capacity is taken up by Apple. And you go to the next competitor. They say, sorry, our capacity is taken up by Apple. You say, well, what if you, you know, what about this new factory you're building? Actually, Apple is helping us pay for that new factory and all the output goes to Apple. And so it's not as if Apple is doing that to thwart competitors. It's just a, a happy side effect. Uh, and Apple is doing it because if you're constantly supply constrained, you just have to address the supply issue. And so that's, you know, Tim Cook's fingerprints are all over that. He of the supply chain uh, mastery. Uh, yeah, so it is a bummer for those people. And I think that's that will end up hurting Microsoft simply because they haven't been in the game long enough to lock up those contracts. But it seems like they, I mean, if anyone has any sway with with the manufacturers in China, it's going to be uh, Microsoft, like from their old business of saying, you know us, we've worked together for a long time. Let's see if we can work a deal out. So I, I think they have the best chance of anyone of actually getting capacity. And it helps that they're using like magnesium and not machined aluminum and other areas where they will, don't want to overlap with Apple. All right. One last piece of follow-up here. Um, was, only 40 minutes of follow and we're doing pretty good. Yeah. Well, let's make it up for lost time. Okay. This is from Jaideep Jezrani. I hope I got that right. This is Balmer in the, the Surface presentation asking the why now question. And I talked about that in the last show. I didn't mm-hmm. really know what he meant by what do you mean by why now? And I was thinking like why you know uh, why announce this now instead of announcing it when it's ready? Uh, Jadeep's theory is he was really stressing that why now, as in why make a tablet now after letting the iPad rule the market for so long? Uh, why is the, why mm. was the response so late from Microsoft? Like you know you've, the iPad's been out for a while. You've known the iPad is a big deal. Why do you wait until now to say it? And uh, and his theory is that part of Bomber's answer was talking about the big capital investment they have to make to do this type of thing. You know, that could mean, you know, coming back to what we just talked about, getting the deals with the factories and, you know, the big investment in industrial design that they didn't have before and just the iteration, all that stuff. Uh, and the fact that they had to keep redesigning until they got it right. Uh, and the idea that they only have this one chance. I don't know if they only have, you know, I don't have this one chance to get Windows right. So let's do Windows Phone 7. Okay, never mind. Windows Phone 8. Like, 
they've they've got a lot of money. They've got more chances than you think. But it's the idea that like we can't mess around with this. So let's instead of rushing to market with something that we don't like, let's take an Apple style approach and come up with a tablet internally. If we don't like it, don't ship it. Redesign, reset, you know, and keep doing that until you get something that you're really happy with. Uh, and so that could be why that why why they're taking so long is they they didn't want to come to market with something they were just like yeah, I guess it's all right it's good enough you know they really wanted to have a a home run and be able to come out there and be proud of what they made and have that big service presentation and say we didn't just ship the first thing we came up with this is like the fifth thing and we worked really hard on it. And the other thing is like I talked about why why couldn't they decide on a price that they they and the big thing about the price is that. Uh, they gave ranges. They said, this is going to be comparable to other ARM-based 10-inch tablets, and this one is going to be comparable to Ultrabook. So they've already hemmed themselves in on price, where they can't have a big surprise where we can say, oh, it, you know, it's half the price of the iPad. It's not going to be. And they're not going to say it's going to be double the price. It's going to be comparable. And the same thing with, the, you know, this Intel one is going to be comparable to Ultrabook MacBook Air entry-level type price. They don't have that much range, so why not just nail down a number? And I was saying, what, what's going to change in the next few months? Uh, and Jadeev's theory is that they wanted to wait for the Google I.O. announcement to see if Google did anything crazy with their pricing on their tablet-type devices to see if they have to react to that. And I'm assuming their, own, their only reaction would be, oh, geez, Google is selling things for, you know, at a 50% loss, they're selling these things for 100 bucks each. We have to do something with pricing to compete with that. And so, therefore, we said we, our price was going to be comparable to other ARM-based tablets, but really, it's going to be like super cheap, like Google's, and we're just going to eat the loss or decide what to do. Basically, you know, wait until the last possible moment to see what every, see everyone else's cards before you decide how you're going to play. Uh, again, I think if they were going to do that, it's kind of silly to give price ranges because the only way they can go is down. They can't say they can't introduce something that you know, oh, it's a thousand bucks for the ARM-based tablet. That's not comparable to entry-level iPads. It's, that's too high. If they do that, it will be negative PR. So all they can do is go down and lose more money on margin. So I don't know. I, I think they got a lot of flack for not announcing pricing. And I think they should have just had the guts to do what Apple does and just name your price and then just don't worry about what anyone else does and hope it sails through on the strength of the product. People are always saying Apple has to lower their prices. Apple has to do this. The netbooks are threatening this. They can't sell MacBook Air for a thousand dollars. Netbooks are three hundred bucks. You know they have to lower prices. Apple just sticks to their guns and say we think we have the right price for the right product, and they go with that. And they're not constantly waiting to see what everyone else does or reacting to it. So Microsoft has not quite learned that lesson yet. All right. Second sponsor while you while you recover. Sure. All right. Our second sponsor is Igloo Software. They have a special URL. Uh, if you want to check this out and support the show in the process, you can go to igloosoftware.com slash like an animal. And uh, <laughs> let me let me tell you a little bit about Igloo and what they are. It's uh, Igloo is a digital workplace. This is bringing really together tons and tons of tools that you've been using already, but doing them better and doing them all in one place. Uh, this is things like calendars, forums, blogs, document repositories. They even have a, a Twitter-like status update stream. And you can make all of these spaces connected, but you can also separate them out. You want the marketing group to have all of their own space with all of these tools. And the same thing for the developers, same thing for the designers. You can do that. You can share them. You can make them public to the internet. Whatever you want to do. doesn't matter if you're outside of a firewall. They do everything securely and behind the scenes your files get individually encrypted they have ssl they have an amazing drag and drop interface and all of this is web-based so you can use it on your mac you can use it on your ipad iphone microsoft surface whatever it is you can customize it with your own html and css or you can use their pretty cool uh, templates that they already have 
And of course, there's an open API, there are JavaScript extensions, you name it. Very, very developer-friendly. And it brings all of these tools that you want to use, all of the discussions that you want to have, file uploading, updates, it brings it all together in one place. And they've just added a bunch of new features. They've got web dev support, so you can mount it on your internet like a, like a shared drive. And they handle all the permissions, they handle versioning. It's all built in. And you, you can do all of this, and it's entirely cloud-based. They push updates, they do bug fixes. And they do a major release every 90 days on a real schedule. So the point is, a great collaboration platform like this, it doesn't have to be out of reach. And they're in the cloud, so they scale as you grow. Go to igloosoftware.com slash like an animal. Now, they have a little thing up in the upper right. It says, I'm just here for the free AeroPress. They are giving away some AeroPresses. So you could go there, you can click that. If you're not interested in their stuff, well, yeah, you can just go and try to win it. But I recommend you take a look because they have some really, really cool stuff here. A digital workplace. And they say, they say get on this page, get a digital workplace, not a toaster, Because they really have built something that is ideal for the kind of work that we do. So uh, remember that URL, igloosoftware.com slash like an animal. And uh, you can sign up for a demo, try it free for 30 days. And uh, hopefully you'll, you'll do that and you'll support the show. So thanks very much to Igloo for making the show possible. They had a custom uh, promo code for my show with like an animal, but then they're still giving away arrow presses. I can find some sort of uh, related bauble. That what, 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 what should they give away for you? I don't know. That's tough. Maybe, I mean, probably... Because they're going to they're do maybe, some more stuff with us, so maybe there's time. But, you know, maybe that toast. Most people probably... Yeah, I don't know. I think more people probably like coffee and AeroPress. Maybe that's a better move. So that is kind of a more mass market thing. So we have some uh, Insta follow-up from the chat room. People are saying that uh, <laughs> that when Ballmer was talking about the Surface, he was, they were claiming that all their hardware was made in the USA. I think someone put in a quote. We control it all. We design it all. We manufacture it all ourselves. Yeah, that doesn't mean it's made in the U.S. Does anyone have a direct quote for the uh, made in the USA thing? Quote, That's a big all thing, of then. our products are made in the U.S., period, close quote. Are you making that up? Yes, I just, well, I read that. I wrote it down and I read it. All right. Well, I anyway, don't know yeah. that that's true, but that would be interesting because they did make a big point at Google I.O. that uh, the, the, the sphere was yes. made in the U.S., Entire, the interrogation droid is made. <laughs> the imperial yeah. imperial probe droid is made in the U.S. And that actually could lend credence to the theory that that you know they don't expect to sell big volumes. But I don't know if that means they don't want to sell big volumes, or they just don't expect to because they think it'll be a slow start and they won't be a hit out of the gate. But that that, that idea of manufacturing stuff in the U.S. that's that's one way to get around Apple buying up so much of the supply chain in Asia is to just go someplace else, right? Uh, but that's that's an uphill battle because. It's not so much that, you know, people think it's because the labor will cost more, but I think the things that I've read say the labor is not the big issue. It's the, it's the fact that, you know, well, there aren't, there aren't a lot of factories that make this kind of thing anywhere in the United States. And if you want to build a factory that makes that, that costs a lot of money and takes a long time. And then you've got to ship things by truck or train or plane or whatever from that factory to the other one. So the guys making the Gorilla Glass in, you know, Kentucky, where, where is Gorilla Glass made? Someone, someone out in the, you know, you have to ship that from there to the other. And whereas in Asia, everything is within a stone's throw of each other. They're just down the block or like an hour drive away. But if you're manufacturing things all over the United States, you're, it takes more time to like, oh, we need a bunch more of these screws. Well, they're coming to us from Tennessee, but things are being assembled in Austin. And then this part comes from Seattle and this part comes from Kentucky. And it's just, it's not as, uh, you're not as agile as you are when everything is all on top of each other like they are in China. So that's, 
that's an uphill battle for people doing stuff in the United States. It's right. very little to do with labor cost or American workers don't want to do this or whatever, and much more to do with that America is a big place and it's spread out and there is no kind of central manufacturing hub like there used to be like in Detroit for cars where everything that involved making the cars was there. You know, they would smelt the steel and do everything and just manu- everything was all the automotive suppliers. If you wanted to sell to the, the big three in Detroit, you, you would position yourself somewhere close by so you could get them their parts as they needed them and all that stuff. All right. There's one one tiny mini topic. It's the last minute one that came in through the uh, the Twitter wires uh, and other things this morning. This is a quote from a blog post at Adobe.com. There will be no certified implementations of Flash Player for Flash Player for Android 4.1. I figure this is worth mentioning. We never talk about Flash and on iOS. This is kind of like a dead issue, but this is a good capper. Kind of like when uh, Apple put macOS 9 in a coffin and buried it on yeah. stage. Try to say that's the end. Well. Flash on mobile, we don't talk about it anymore because it's such a non-issue. But here is, you know, the, supposedly the bastion of, hey, we do everything. We're going to have Flash support. We're awesome. Not like Apple who's making you not have Flash. Android is now, the, late, the latest version of Android is not going to have Flash player. Will anyone <laughs> care? Will anyone notice? Is this a big deal? Are we all just tired of it? I think it's just worth noting this is all winding down <laughs> the way we kind of expected it to uh, even the people who really wanted to support Flash for whatever reason is just not working out for them. And I mean, who knows? Maybe Android 4.2 will have a Flash player or 4.3 or something, but it still sure seems like things are winding down on the Flash on mobile front. And good riddance. Because <laughs> does it, is anybody stuff. is anybody really shocked by this or surprised by that? I don't think so, but it, it's it's worth noting, you know, like official Certainly. statement of like, I, it's actually kind of surprising to me because you figured, well, they'll support it. It will limp along. But like you, this, this problem solves itself, not from the side of the manufacturers and Adobe. It solves itself by people who run websites deciding uh, people are going to read our website using mobile devices. And when they do that, we can't assume they have Flash Player. Therefore, let's make a version of our website that doesn't use Flash Player. And then maybe after they do that, they say, you know what? we could just have one version of the website if we use, you know, responsive design and HTML5 and blah, blah, blah. And so let's just drop Flash Player for everybody and concentrate on, you know, like that's, that's why you don't need a Flash Player on the mobile because the people who make the content that you want to see have slowly changed to use, you know, HTML5 video and stuff like that. Uh, and so it's kind of like the, the OS makers and Adobe are like, well... It seems like it's not that big of a deal for Android 4.1 not to have Flash support because so many websites, because of the success of iOS, have some sort of alternate version that doesn't use Flash anyway, or maybe that's their main version now. And so, you know, we can afford to do this. It's not as if because Android stopped shipping Flash, then all of a sudden all these Flash websites are like, oh, we used to be able to use Flash on mobile, but now that Android's not shipping it in 4.1, we have to change. It's it's the other way around. So... uh, the, the leading this is a trailing indicator i think and then, of course there's the problem that uh, <laughs> the vast majority of android devices are running version 2.3 so what version 4.1 does may not be relevant for a potentially a long time yeah and speaking of google uh i watched the or tried to keep track of the live various live blogs of the google io thing in the day one keynote i didn't uh, absorb all the announcements but i thought i'd pick out one to give a little bit on and again i haven't seen this video myself i only read the live blogs and the news after the fact so i may be missing lots of nuances that uh i will only get after i watch the the keynote although i have real problem watching the google io keynotes and they i i was well, don't you like about it? 
I was enthralled and wrapped by the the Microsoft Surface thing. I'm like, I was interested in the hardware. I was really interested in what these people would say, but the Google ones just bore me. Like, and they they leave a bad taste in my mouth too. Like a couple of years ago, when they had that guy Vic, what's his name? What's his last name? I, I know who you mean. Gun, you're you're going to try and make me say it. I am going to try to make you say. I don't know how to say. It. Uh, he was up on stage making snarky comments about Apple, and it just seemed like desperate and inappropriate and. You know, and, and then after that, some of them are just, they just weren't grabbing me. Like, I wasn't excited about what they were doing because I guess, I guess I didn't have faith well, that. You gotta un- unplug this, your thing. Wow. We're back, to, we're back to the old days. I'm gonna leave this in. I'm not gonna edit this out. Back in the old days, folks, uh, John Syracuse used to use this, this headset, a USB headset. And after talking for approximately an hour, and here we are 53 minutes in, uh, it would start to get really staticky. But that was like clockwork in an hour. It should, it should be exactly 60. I think this was a separate problem. Am I better now? Yeah, it sounds great now. I think it was exactly an hour. I think this was just some other problem. Okay. Well, so anyway. it sound, you sound fantastic again. Continue, please. Yeah. So I, I guess I just don't have faith that the cool things that the Google people on stage are excited about will result in a product that I'm excited about and other people will get excited about. Like they, it's like the boy who cried wolf. Like, you know, they have, we have some cool thing. And it's really awesome, and you're going to love it, and it's going to be popular. It's going to change the world, and then it just goes away. And the next year, they say the same thing about something new, and then it just goes away. Uh, that happens with Apple, too, of course, but Apple's hit-to-miss ratio is much better. And I think Microsoft's hit-to-miss ratio is, is even better than that. Like, when Microsoft does something, I guess I still take notice. Maybe it's because I'm giving them so much credit for making Windows, and I shouldn't be. Uh, but there's so many things that Microsoft does that sometimes I think they're cool. Like Google TV, they were Google was the only one who was willing to try to make the uh, omnivorous box that I talked about from our first episode and and in past things that I've written about television, they're going to say, we're going to make a box that accepts inputs from every possible source, your cable company, your satellite, the internet, uh, a DVR that you might have attached to everything. And we will just suck it all in and provide a unified interface and search over all of it and make it so that you don't care where stuff comes from. We'll handle the details. We'll keep track of everything and we'll provide you a simplified interface with one remote no matter what crazy crap you have attached to your TV. And I, I give that big thumbs up. And I was really excited about Google TV. But the reality of the product was that it was crappy and didn't work. Nobody liked it. Nobody bought it. And it was a big failure for the people they partnered with. And it was just a bummer, right? And, you know, repeat for every other thing they talk about. Other, you know, their big hit was, was Google Search and, I guess, Gmail and stuff. And after that, they do lots of stuff that just falls on its face. Google Plus, Knoll, uh, the Google... Uh, then they have some sort of database project, even things like Google Docs and spreadsheets, which are cool. And I use this just not hasn't set the world on fire, I guess. So I don't know. I, I, I think I probably need to adjust my attitude about Google because eventually one of these things is going to be a big hit. And if I dismiss it because it's like, oh, they kept saying everything's going to be great. And it turns out if it's not, I will miss the, the thing that is a big hit. So the one thing I chose to focus on in their announcement is their announcement of the Google Nexus 7, which is their tablet type device, that seven-inch tablet. Uh, and th- the first thing that struck me about it is that from a naming perspective, jumping from Nexus 1, like the phone we just talked about, yeah. to Nexus 7 is a terrible mistake. Uh, it's like, I, I like the Nexus 1 branding because it suggested that this was the start of a long road culminating in handheld versions of Sean Young and Harrison Ford. <laughs> and that's what, that's what I wanted to, to see stretching out in front of me. This is the Nexus 1. But in, you know, in 10 years or 20 years, we'll have the Nexus 7 and it will just be awesome, right? They jump right to it. They said, oh, okay, well, here's Nexus 7. 
You can't do that. And I guess the seven is like, well, it's a seven inch tablet or whatever. And it makes some kind of sense, but you can't jump right to Nexus seven. Was there ever a Nexus two? I don't know. Maybe they did do numbers and I missed them, but it just seems too. the distance of time between Nexus one and Nexus seven seems too compressed. You got to save the Nexus seven for when you finally got something worthy of that name, you know, something without a four year lifespan, something that doesn't know that it, that it's not human. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed that they, that they made that jump. All right. And the, the, the second meta point before I start talking about the little details I have on the device is that listening to this announcement of them showing, here's our Nexus 7, it's our 7-inch tablet, look at all the stuff that it can do. Uh, here's what the hardware looks like. Here's what you can, you, know, you can buy stuff from Google Play with it. And we have apps and blah, blah, blah. I, I, had, I have these occasionally and I had it again. I had one of these, can't we all just get along moments? Because I thought about, geez, why, why does it have to be this way? Uh, ideally, what we would have is we would have, and for like a brief moment, this looked like it was possible in like 2007. We'd have Apple hardware and software design because that's what they're the best at. We'd have Google network services for like search and maps and all the, the service side stuff they're good at. And we would have like Amazon's commerce engine where you can buy paper towels really cheaply and they send them to you and you can buy anything you want anywhere and you scan a barcode and it'll just come up on Amazon and tell you all about it and have reviews. That's what we want. Like we want the best that everybody has to offer. But instead what we get is everybody trying to do everything. Apple has to make the hardware, the software, online services, do their own maps, start doing a little pieces of their own search by partnering with other people. Google's got to do the network services, but they got to have their own tablet and their own operating system and their own app store and their own music store. And Amazon's got to have its music store and its video store and they got to make tablet hardware and they got to make, you know, and they're kind of using the operating system, same operating system as Google, but not really. And like everybody wants to rule the world, as they say. If we could just get along, like in the beginning, you know, we had, we had, it wasn't a great one. Apple and Google were working together and you had, you know, Eric Schmidt up there on stage saying, we're going to be the awesome server-side component of this because Lord knows that you can't do server-side stuff, Apple, with your mobile meat crap and everything. And so you guys do the hardware and the cool interface and the, the local applications and we will do the services. And I, I mean, it worked out well. Like we liked when we had iPhones with, with Google Maps on them and we could buy stuff with apps through Amazon. But now everybody wants to have everything. Google says, no, we want to have our own operating system, our own platform. We're going to have our own phone. We're going to have our own app store, our own digital everything. And, and the app says, well, then fine. Well, we're going to do our own maps and maybe we'll do our own search and our own ads. And Amazon's like, hey, I know you think we're just a store, but we're going to make tablets too. And we're going to make our own hardware. And it's going to be re- focused on reading, but not really. And we're going to have apps and we'll try to take some of those apps that Google makes for its... its isn't it kind of a shame that we, we all know what the strengths of these companies are. And it's not, not to say the companies can't get new strengths. Like Amazon, I think, has done very well building itself up to do new things. Like, I mean, you know, Amazon was just a place that you bought books in the beginning. And then they built up this whole infrastructure for, you know, cloud computing. And that's a big strength that they have. Uh, and then they're branching out into hardware. So it shows a company can get good at new things. But it's so clear when we look at these companies where their strengths and weaknesses are. And they're not complementing each other. They're all trying to do everything at once and trying to sort of, you know, it's like an animal covering up their injuries. The Apple is trying to hide the fact that it's not good at online services and try to just, you know, we, they're limping along, hiding their limp from predators so they won't get eaten. Like, we have iCloud. We're really good <laughs> at that stuff and everything. And Google's like, well, we can make software and, and hardware. Like, the, the big announcement of like Google saying, we're going to go after lag. We're, we're, we're declaring a war on lag. because You know, even though we've never previously acknowledged it, our devices have and our OS has a reputation of not being as responsive as iOS. So we really concentrate on that in this time. And look at us, we're better than ever. And I, I haven't tried one of these devices. I don't know if it's true or not. But like the fact that they're on version 4.1 and they think now is the time we should really address lag 
that's obviously not their strength, you know. Uh, responsiveness of the design was such an incredible focus of uh, iPhone OS as it was then known, version 1.0 five years ago. That you know, and Google just didn't isn't set up that way. That's just not their strength. They didn't understand that you really need to make this thing. Even even with iOS, you know, iPhone OS as the example, when they, when they did Android, they you know they they totally redid their Android efforts. We got to make something more like iPhone OS, but they didn't they didn't see the right stuff. You know, they should have declared a war on lag the second they saw the iPhone come out and it touched one. This thing we've been doing with Android, making a smartphone OS, it looks like the old smartphone OSs with like a five-way switch and, all, and a hardware keyboard. We got to scrap that and we got to make like iOS and not just look like iOS and screenshots, but behave like it. And it's taken them until version 4.1 to really buckle down on that. And apparently they need a four core processor, like a gig of RAM to get it done. Uh, and the same thing with Amazon, where we, we know what their strengths are and everything, but they're, they're, you know, they want to make a tablet too. And the Kindle Fire, like it's okay as a way to consume content from Amazon, but no one thinks it's an iPad competitor. Like it's a totally different thing. So I was sad about that. Yeah. But as for the actual devices, the Google Nexus 7 thing, they've got, it's, it's, everyone says it's a uh, Kindle Fire competitor because it's seven inch and the price is similar. So it's, it's 200 bucks for the eight gig model. And that's super tiny. Like if you think about it, like who can fit anything in eight gigs? It almost reminds me of the Apple TV, which I think also has, is that four gigs or eight gigs of, of flash in it? Like it's not expected to be a place to store stuff. It's kind of just a waypoint. And your Apple TV, you rent or download movies or whatever, but they're not stored in the device. You just, you know, it keeps track of what you bought and what you haven't. And you don't care about what's cached locally and what isn't. It just has to be network connected. And if it's not cached locally, it will stream it and pull it down and store it in the cache. You can fast forward or whatever. Like that's what this model strikes me as. Although I think it doesn't behave that way. I think it behaves more like a traditional iPad type device where there is streaming or whatever, but you also can store stuff on it and you have control over that. And then it's 250 for the six, 16 gigabyte model, which is a little bit more reasonable storage, but then they're pushing up on the price. And the interesting bit about this announcement, uh, aside from the, you know, the jelly bean uh, war on lag and the new OS and all that stuff and the fact that they have a seven inch tablet, is these stories that were after the fact where uh, Google admits that they're not making money on these things, that their margin is basically zero or very small. Uh, I think I put a link in the show notes to... Uh, Gruber's link to uh, a quote from uh, the, the Google powers to be the saying that, that, you know, when we sell these things through, we're selling at cost. We're not making any margin. on them. Right. And that seems kind of like the Amazon model. I think we talked about this a while back based on Horace's article about uh, Apple's model is they, they sell their hardware at a profit and all the stuff that they do with the software and everything that just breaks even. And that's just a, a reason for you to buy the hardware because that's where Apple makes their money. Right. So Apple totally concentrates on the entire platform, but they just happen to make their money off of the hardware and they make good money off of it. Uh, and the idea was that if you make a couple hundred bucks every time someone buys an iPad, you can afford to plow that money into making the next iPad even better. Whereas if you sell your Kindle Fire or your Google Nexus 7 at cost, hoping that you're going to make it up in, in volume on the back end of it, you have to wait. Like the guy buys the Amazon, Amazon Kindle and you don't make any money. Okay, now we just wait and we wait for that guy. That guy's going to buy some books. He's going to buy some movies. Maybe he'll rent some movies. Maybe he'll buy things through the... You know. And there's a long period of time under which you are hoping to... That the person who bought that device that you didn't make any money on will eventually do things that do make you money and that sequence of things that they do will add up to the 100 or 200 bucks that Apple gets the moment someone buys an iPad, right? And so you have to, like, we don't know how, how long that is. How long does it take for Amazon to make as much money on a, each Kindle Fire that they sold as Apple makes the second someone buys an iPad? Probably a pretty long time, which means that Amazon 
either has to take money from elsewhere in its business or just wait a longer time before they invest in, oh, let's make the, the next version of the Kindle Fire. We can really just plow tons of money into this because, boy, we're selling a lot of these Kindle Fires and every time someone buys one, we get a lot of money. It's No, they have to wait. They have to either wait or take money from elsewhere in their business. So Apple is better able to to really churn on its hardware to just you know leave the other guys behind to just you know keep them guessing and keep keep ahead of the game. And Google, it's the same thing. You know, if they're not making margins of the hardware, the second someone buys a, a, a Nexus Seven, Google's like, okay, we we've got we've got a potential money maker out there. They bought our device, uh, and Amazon makes it up by selling content. And the content Amazon sells is books, movies, paper towels, you know, gazebos, whatever the hell. Google sells uh, or Amazon sells rather. I'm just waiting for Amazon to start selling, selling cars. Maybe they already do, but it's like, hey, buy a new car. Now, and Google, what is Google <laughs> selling? What what content? It, uh, Google makes it up by selling content. What is the content? As we've discussed many times, and as many people said, Google's content is you. It's its customers. So you you buy the Google Nexus Seven, and Google says, okay, now we got to wait for the money to come in, and because people are going to pay us for our content, and our content is that guy who just bought a Google Nexus Seven, and we're going to sell that guy to advertisers. Uh, they have media stores as well. You can buy music, you can buy movies, stuff like that. But if Apple can only operate those at like minimum profit or break even, I can't imagine Google getting so much better deals that those are a big profit center. Never mind that I don't think they have the volumes to, to make up for it. So it's they're in the same situation as Amazon, where say this thing is a smash hit and tons of people buy it. That's good for the Android platform. It's good for the Android ecosystem. It makes, you know, there's a halo effect for Android phones because there's more Android developers and stuff like that. But what Google didn't make money off that person yet. They have to sell ads against the searches they do. They have to sell that customer's information to somebody. They have to, you know, uh, uh, where does Google think it's going to make its money? Does it think, oh, we're going to be able to get our volumes up on our Google Play Store and we will, that's will be where we make our money despite the fact that nobody in the business makes their money that way? Uh, I don't know. And their hands are kind of tied again by Apple's massive manufacturing Midas. First of all, they didn't even feel like they could feel a 10 inch tablet because maybe they didn't think they could be price competitive. Maybe they think they would be losing money on the thing. Or maybe they just think seven inches better. That was their big pitch. Like, oh, seven inch doesn't make your hand tired when you're holding it. Isn't it so much nicer? Your whole life is with you, but you can fit it in your pocket kind of thing. That's their pitch. But I think that they are afraid to go to 10 inch because that's just a tougher room. Like uh, they, they don't feel, maybe they don't feel like they want to go head on. Yeah, like the they have, it has to be different in this way for them to be able to make any kind of mark at all. Yeah. Cause someone goes into a store and says, I could buy the iPad or I could buy this other 10 inch tablet that is worse in every possible other way. Like not worse in hardware, but maybe it costs a little bit more or maybe the price is the same, but like, geez, it's not the iPad. It doesn't have the iPad's ecosystem. It doesn't have all the apps that my friends have on the iPad. Like the iPad is just so established that it's the, the gorilla in the market that your product, even if it's better in hardware and even if you beat them on price, they say, yeah, but I want to really want to do that thing. And that, that app is iOS exclusive. And they say it's coming to Android or that game isn't out yet for Android or I'm not really familiar with Android. All my friends, like it's just like the Windows effect. The same reason people didn't buy Macs. It must be incredibly frustrating for them because we all believed uh, that Macs were superior. But people would be like, I don't know. I don't want to be like on the outside and have this weird thing that nobody else has. Uh, and that's not true of phones because Android phones sell like hotcakes, but Android tablets do not sell like hotcakes. And so a, a, a Google tablet that was 10 inch 
would be a much more difficult sell. Whereas now, at least, it's so clear to the customer. All right, this is way cheaper than an iPad. It's also much smaller. It's different. That you know, you are not. It's not a comparison. It's not such an easy comparison where you say these are both big ten sheets of glass, but one of them is the iPad and one of them isn't. Now it's like, okay, this is a different thing. I could buy two of these for the price of an iPad, uh, and they're smaller. And isn't that kind of cool and interesting? And uh, so uh, the prospects of them selling this, like I, again, I haven't used Jelly Bean yet, but if Jelly Bean is as good as they say. Here's one way they can get around this stupid problem that all the phone makers are still shipping 2.3. Well, we're going to make our own hardware and damn it, it ships with Jelly Bean. And that's our cool, awesome new version of the OS. And we're tired of you making us look bad shipping some ancient version of our OS. We've done a lot of hard work. We think our new OS is awesome. We're going to ship it on our own hardware and, uh, and assume they will do, do a better job of keeping it up to date uh, than the uh, third-party manufacturers have. So I I don't have any particular prediction for the Nexus Seven, but I, I I would like it to sell a lot. I think there's no reason it shouldn't sell a lot because I think it does offer a unique value proposition that Apple is not currently addressing, and that the Kindle Fire is worse at. Uh, this is basically a much better Kindle Fire without the same content store backing it, but in terms of hardware and software integration, like I've used the Kindle Fire and it is not a great piece of hardware or software or combination it just like it's like barely adequate for what amazon wants you to do with it from the demos the nexus 7 looks far beyond barely adequate uh it just kind of that's almost a compliment coming from you far beyond barely adequate yeah and, and, but it's just kind of a shame that they, <laughs> no one has fi- like it's kind of like when you when you feel you said you feel better about like paying for services like email and stuff yes because then you're it's not mysterious like wouldn't you feel better about the nexus 7 if you knew like well don't tell us you don't make any money on it it makes us depressed like at least pretend you're making money you'd feel better about google like saying oh and they're making money on these things like they're selling them at a profit and so if and when the nexus 7 is wildly successful or at least successful as the kindle fire we're like yeah there's money going to Google's coffers for them to iterate and make a strong competitor to iOS. And we're like, geez, the, they sell a million Nexus sevens. Like we still got to wait for them to make money somehow with some magic business plan. that's going to make, you know, they're just going to sell customer info. And we think that's skeevy. We'd rather, we'd be happier if Google was making money off the hardware. Yeah. That's it. That feels more honest and simple to us. You know, are you going to be buying one of these? No, I don't think so. I mean, like I don't, I'm not sold on the seven inch form factor. Maybe I'd have to like have one for a while to see that it's better. But now that I have my own iPad, my poor iPod Touch is getting less use. Uh, part of that is because there are so many web pages that I know I can load on my iPod Touch that cause Safari to either crash or be killed by the low memory killer thing in the OS. Because I'll you know I'll load a web page. Google Plus, ironically, is the, the you know, I'll load something that someone wrote in Google Plus, and I'll see the little button at the bottom that's like the, the changes from the stop indicator to the reload indicator, and I'll see it going stop, reload, stop, reload. Stop. I'm like, oh, but start the timer because in about three seconds, Safari's going to be up. Oh, there it goes back to Springboard, you know. And this, it's completely repeatable. And I'm just running out of memory because the, the I have the current generation iPod Touch, but that's a very old piece of hardware. It has very little RAM and stuff like that. So I find myself using my big giant iPad more and more. It's difficult because there are fewer places in the house to put down the iPad where it's like, whereas the iPod Touch, you can just squirrel away in like a little high shelf or whatever, but you need someplace big to put the iPad that's out of children's reach, but it's not going to fall over, you know? But I find myself using the iPad a lot. So maybe a seven inch would be like the best of both worlds for me, but I'm not going to leave the iOS platform. I have lots of apps invested. I like the way the OS works. Uh, you know, it's, it's an uphill battle for them to convert me over. 
especially since it hasn't proven to me that there's any particular advantage to Android or its apps. The only thing they have to entice me is the form factor. Uh, but even the hardware doesn't look quite that sexy. I think the rim around the screen looks a little bit thick to me. I'd like if it was slimmer. I do like the, the textured rubberized looking back. I wish Apple would do that, but it's not elegant and Johnny Ivy. So, no, I don't plan to buy one, but if someone gave me one, I would play with it. And I think there's a potential for me to be wooed by a 7-inch form factor. But we'll see. We don't, have, we don't have three sponsors today. Yeah, we got we got a quick third one. All right. Can, you need a drink or you need to lay down while, while yeah, I do it? This is a good time to do it. Okay. Uh, third sponsor, Shopify.com. These are the guys that I use to sell T-shirts. Uh, but there's no reason that you shouldn't use them to sell other things. Pretty much anything online you might want to sell. And uh, they handle everything from physical goods like T-shirts to electronic purchases. You name it. Anything you want to sell online, you can sell it with Shopify. They offer a complete e-commerce solution. It's fully hosted, so you don't have to do anything. You just show up, you log in, you create an online store. You can pick one of their templates, you list your products, you accept credit card orders, you ship your stuff, all with just a click of a mouse, and it's, it couldn't be easier. There's no software to download. There's nothing to maintain. And they have more than 100 professionally designed e-commerce templates majority of them I think are free, but if you want to get really fancy, yeah, there's a really amazing theme gallery. You can pick the one that you want. They handle all of the stuff behind the scenes. It's completely secure and they have what's called level one PCI DSS compliance. And that just means that you don't need to worry about that kind of compliance when you want to sell stuff because it's a huge headache. You don't want to do that. These guys are super reliable. More than 25,000 stores are running on Shopify right now. And if you go to Shopify.com, actually go to Shopify.com slash 5x5, I'll tell you why in a minute, uh, there's a little link up there for examples. You wouldn't believe the stores that are running on Shopify that you probably are already buying stuff from, probably already have bought stuff from, and you had no idea that it wasn't just some completely customized e-commerce solution. That's how good Shopify is. So go and check them out. And uh, normally they give you 30 days to try them out for free. Uh, but if you go to Shopify.com slash 5 by 5 you'll get three months of free Shopify goodness. So do that. Support the show. Shopify.com slash 5 by 5 And uh, I doubt we'll crash their servers if everybody goes there once, but it sure would be cool to try it. So do that, and uh, you'll be supporting the show. Thanks very much to Shopify for making the show possible. So my last topic here is leftover from last week, I think. I didn't want to get into it. I know here we are going long in the show, but I guess, oh, Jesus, the, the curse is 75 minutes, 75 minutes. It's because I said something. That's what happened. I got to learn. Just don't say anything about the length and you'll fit it in. All right. Yeah. Don't uh, say anything about the length and fit it in. Oh, yeah. They're eating it up in the chat room, so to speak. <laughs> All right. So this, this is a story that's like a week old. So I apologize for bringing up old news. And I'm actually... I'm behind on all of my podcasts because of vacation, WWC and everything. So forgive me if for the past few shows, I seem like I've been in a time warp because I think I have been. Uh, this is a, a reaction to a story that was posted at Wired. When was it posted? I don't know. A couple weeks ago by Kyle Weens of iFixit. iFixit is the great website that uh, disassembles each new piece of Apple hardware as it comes out. And they have great illustrated guides to disassembling your Apple hardware to repair it. Uh, for example, when I had to change the hard drive in the Mac that I am speaking into right now, 
I went to an iFixit guide and ripped the thing and uh, followed the instructions when I ripped this thing open and swapped out the dead hard drive for a new, faster, better one. Uh, so that's where they're coming from. They're a company that sells, they sell tools and they have free guides to how to repair your hardware. And the title of this article is called The New MacBook Pro. And they're referring to the Retina MacBook Pro right, that we discussed right. a couple of shows ago. The New MacBook Pro, colon, unfixable, unhackable, untenable. Uh, that's three words with decreasing levels of uh, veracity, <laughs> I believe. Uh, here's a quote that I pulled out of thing. The Retina MacBook is the least repairable laptop we've ever taken apart. And they're, we, they're talking about iFixit. Unlike the previous model, the display is fused to the glass, which means that replacing the LCD requires buying an expensive display assembly. The RAM is now soldered to the logic board, making future memory upgrades impossible. The battery is glued to the case, requiring customers to mail their laptop to Apple every so often for a $200 replacement. The design may, be, may well be comprised of highly recyclable aluminum, grass, aluminum and glass, but my friends in the electronics recycling industry tell me they have no way of recycling aluminum that has glass glued to it, like Apple did with both this machine and the recent iPad. So this article is in the show notes. You can read it. This comes down very strongly against the, the design and manufacturing of the Retina MacBook Pro for, for the reasons stated that uh, it kind of strikes me. Well, all right. So the, the first part about this is it kind of strikes me like this is going to be old reference. So people won't get this maybe, but like complaining that when your FPU dies in your Quadra 900, you can't replace it like you on the Mac 2 because <laughs> right. the Mac 2 had a separate 6882 <laughs> FPU. And right. if that died, you could yank it out or somehow and put, you know, like, because, oh, now, now the FPU is integrated into the CPU. That means if the FPU dies, the whole CPU dies, and I'm just out the entire thing. This sucks, right? And, or like, they'll use, I guess, some more modern examples. Like, well, if my GPU goes bad on my iPad, I got to throw the whole thing out because the GPU is right on the same, on a single chip with the system on a chip. When that thing goes, it's soldered to the board and the whole thing is dead. And I just need a board replacement. And it's, you know, it's not repairable in isolation. I need an entirely new logic board. And that costs almost as much as the entire device or half as much as the device or whatever. Uh, both these examples probably sound silly to people. And I think that's kind of what uh, the root of this is like, why? Why is this iFixit guy upset about this? Ignore the fact that he has a website or a business that deals with fixing things. Why is anybody upset that, for example, you can't replace the, the battery or that the RAM is soldered to the logic board? This is a question for you, Dan. This is the part where you... Yeah, I don't know. You, but you have to think of something. That's a, before you state your theory, because usually you're, you're right about this kind of thing. You know, there's, there's this group of people who always like to upgrade the machines beyond what the recommended specs are. And uh, a laptop will come out and it'll have a, it'll say it has a, it can do eight gigs of RAM. Yeah. And then they'll find a way to make it take 16. And so you think they're upset because this is something they, well. Like they, they want to expand it beyond where it should go. Is that one pot? That's not your theory. Okay. Let me it's see if close. I can guess. Like it, it's, it's circling the same <laughs> issue. I mean, circling, the, 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 my, I mean, I don't, I really don't think that people are upset that these things can't be expanded beyond what the specs say, but there is always that group of people, the, the Uber nerds, the hardware guys who love to do that kind of thing. And that for them, that's, this becomes a disappointment or that they can't swap Ram in and out with other, other things. I don't know. So my explanation is the boring one and the obvious one, but I think it's the actual one is that. People are don't don't some people don't like the fact that you can't upgrade the RAM. And the only reason they're upset about that is because you used to be able to upgrade the RAM. P 
people don't like it, then you can't change the battery because at one point you could change. The so like a precedent had been set. Yeah. And that I think is literally the only reason that people are upset about this, because if you have an established thing and it has certain properties, regardless of like what the people might have thought, like if you talk to someone in 1965 and say, you're going to have a personal computation device in your house and you know, it will be portable and you can carry it from room to room and blah, blah, blah. And you said, what are the important characteristics you would like of this thing? I don't think anyone would say, oh, the battery needs to be replaceable. But if you introduce, you know, the, the original compact or whatever the first, you know, portable computers were and they have a battery and you can replace it and you do that for like 20 years, then when someone comes along and says, we have a thing that you will consider a laptop or a portable computer, but our battery isn't replaceable, they say, wait a second. For 20 years, I've been able to take the batteries out of my portable computers and replace them with different ones. And this is something I could do. And, you know, same thing with like my kids' toys or anything else batteries you can take out even watches i can take out the battery and buy a replacement battery it's not a you know something that consumers ask for it's just simply because that's the way things are and people get used to the way things are and when you change something people get angry about it now there are desirable characteristics of a replaceable battery i think this is the best example because it, there are real reasons why you would want a replaceable battery the most important one that we used to hear all the time when the first Apple laptops came with the sealed in batteries. It's like, I go on the road and I bring three charge batteries with me. And so when one battery runs out, I plop it out of the bottom of the thing, dump it in my bag, take out the other battery, slap it in, and I'm good to go for a few more hours. How the heck am I going to do that when you seal the battery in? Like, yeah. this is not, you know, an abstract concept of like, oh, it's unhackable and I want to overclock it or whatever. It's like, here's a real thing you're taking away from me. And that is true. And yet I still contend that if laptops had not had replaceable batteries or if electronics had not had replaceable batteries for years and years, if they had always been sealed in, no one would bat an eyelash about it. Yeah. If, in other words, if, if every laptop in the history of time had always had a sealed battery, nobody would be saying, oh, this is horrible. Yeah. They'd be just going along would, and saying, oh, well, it's a good laptop. It's lighter. Yeah. Or people would innovate and say, well, you know how for the past 20 years we've had a sealed in battery. We made our battery <laughs> replaceable and it's a little bit bigger and a little more bulky. But now when you go on trips, you can bring a bunch of spare batteries with you. Right. Uh, and people would be like, oh, well, I don't know about these new interchangeable batteries. They make the laptops a little bit bigger and they can't make the batteries as big. So they don't last as long. So I'm going to stick with the sealed one. Like people are such, uh, you know, myself included, or, you know, so, so uh, conditioned by the way things are that, that we have difficulty examining things as they exist and we can only see them as a delta from what came before and if the delta is negative in some way or even if the delta is positive it's just like oh, it's, it's a change and it's and it's upsetting crisis so crisis in the chat room says for me it's about longevity my 2008 macbook pro is still going strong with the help of an ssd drive the combination of first generation apple technology and the phrase least repairable mac ever rings alarm bells in other words uh, i think people are are concerned that when new technology is available and you kept hearing people who were upgrading the SSD drives or upgrading from a hard drive to an SSD drive were saying things like, and I'm, I'm sorry if crisis, if this wasn't your point, but there were people who were saying faster, newer technology is available. If I could only replace this old technology, I would be able to breathe new life into what was otherwise a great computer. And I, I'm not saying that there's going to be new RAM available that's going to make that much of a difference. RAM speed doesn't seem to be the thing that people are are upgrading to, you know, in a year or two years. It's more usually hard drives and and things like that. But what if 
some kind of new or better technology were to come out. Is that a valid reason to be upset about this? Well, I mean, I'm not saying reasons are valid or invalid. I'm trying to just look at what the root cause is. And I, I don't think the root cause is about the things that you lose versus the things that you gain. I think the root cause is we're, it used to be this way and now it's different and change is upsetting because everything about the way I view this product was centered around the way thing, the way it has always been. And when you change the way the product is, is the, it's it's uh, it, it puts a bump in the road. Right? Yeah. So for the, the examples you're bringing up, is like the, inherent in that idea is that when a new storage technology comes along, I will be able to, for just the price of the new storage, buy it. And then myself, if I'm handy or whatever, take out the old storage, put in the new one and extend the life of my product. The idea that when you buy something, uh, as, as technology advances, as it does so rapidly in this industry, you can preserve your investment by upgrading the thing that you bought for less than the price of buying the new thing. But why do people expect to be able to do that? Because you've been able to do that in the past. We don't have that expectation in, in, in general, uh, good old car analogies for cars. When a new turbocharger comes out that is more efficient and less likely to crack and has you know better boost and less lag than the turbocharger that came in your car, most people don't expect to be able to go to an auto parts store, store buy the new turbocharger and install it simply because most people don't expect to be able to repair their cars. The percentage of people who can go to an auto parts store and buy an turbocharger... Buy the piece that they need, yeah. Right, and and repair their car is probably similar to the percentage of people that feel they can do the same thing with the hard drive. It just so happens that in the circles we travel in, we are in, you know, the the circles of the people who don't have a problem reading an iFixit guide, cracking open their laptop, and replacing the hard drive. Uh... But nobody is condemning the the latest Toyota Camry because the regular person can't upgrade the you know the head gasket to one that's more heat resistant or can't put in uh, you know new uh, rocker arms that are made of titanium when they come out. Like I could extend the life of this Camry and make it a better car if only I could uh, could buy the you know adapt these new technologies and put them in. People don't have that expectation, and I I think that expectation has changed because. First of all, cars used to be more repairable because there was less computer controlled and sealed up. But second, the people who were interested in cars used to just be gearheads. And now everybody has a car and not everyone is interested in being able to open up and repair their their stuff. Well, I mean, part of that was necessity is the fact that if you did buy a car, you almost had the responsibility on yourself of knowing how to make it work, knowing how to keep it going, at least to some degree. And doing doing your own oil change now, I don't know anybody that changes their own oil. When I was a teenager, like that's why would you take it in someplace? You could just, you know, go down to the, go down to the Kmart and buy your, your, uh, 20 W 50 and do the oil change yourself. I mean, you, it's a rip, it's a rip off. Who's going to pay someone 40 bucks to change the oil. The right, oil and and you got to sit you there and, and wait for it. And the time it take would take to go down there, sit down there, wait, and you know, watch their, their one TV channel that comes in. I could get down to the Kmart, get the oil, get back, do it all myself and be and be done and do it for you know ten bucks. Yeah, and so this this situation is uh, the the meta problem is that the people who used to be the center of the computer market, people who are listening to the show, people right. like us, yeah, are now no longer and haven't been for a really long time the center of the market for computers. And it's almost and this is the part that I think scares them. And you you make a really really good point, John. I think this this they don't want to see the fact that that has changed and 
is never, ever, ever going to be that way. And they still feel like they, because for the longest time, these were the guys who were at the center of the computing universe for, for so long. And in fact, these are the, probably the people who helped make computers successful in such a big part of our daily lives. And they are why we are where we are with computers. And yet, they're no longer being catered to. Yeah, and that's the thing about not being the center of the market. It, like, it's not just like uh, an ego and a bragging right thing. The companies were companies were catering to these people. They were saying, "What what do you guys want? We'll make. Oh, do you want a computer that's like this? Oh, do you want to have a thing that like opens up real easy, and easy to repair? Or you want this gigaw? You want it like computer companies, magazines, advertising, everything was serving them. And it's great to be the center of, of the market. You know, if you're in a you know, uh, uh you know male 18 to 34 or whatever the target demographic for action movies is like people keep making movies just for you like things blow up and it's like it's great <laughs> hey right. here i am serve me bring the stuff that i like and then suddenly you become an old person and you notice no one people just want to sell you boner pills and uh and insurance and it's like boy i liked it better when they were making action movies for me why doesn't anyone make movies that old people like or you know whatever that's probably a bad analogy but like when when we when we nerds were the center of the market, people just showered stuff upon us. We will make a great gadget for you, oh nerds. Do you like it? Does it please you? Have we pleased your nerd sensibilities? Here it is. And it's sad when we are no longer catered to in that manner. Uh, and a lot of the times we will dress it up by saying, no, 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 that's not what it is. That's not what it is at all. I have some, let me list my rational reasons why replaceable batteries are better than normal ones. It's like, this has nothing to do with us being catered to. There's nothing to do with the way it was versus the way it is. Here are some real solid reasons. Uh, but I think a lot of it is just rationalization because all those reasons are valid, but they're only valid for you and you are a, a vanishingly small portion of the market. Now, as people pointed out in, in the chat room, well, first, DC says some people do have the expectation they're going to be able to repair stuff. Says, yes, of course they do, but they are in the increasing minority. And Dented Meat says, uh, if anything, cars became more reliable when they became less repairable. And this gets to the heart of like, why are they doing this? Are they doing this to punish you? Like, oh, you geeks aren't the center of the market. Now we're going to do things we know you don't like just to punish you out of spite. That's not why they're doing it. Every move that, that they're doing that flies in the face of what geeks want and is different than what they did before is aimed towards the new center of the market, which is not you, which is those other people. And what do those other people want? They just want to buy a thing. They just want it to work. They don't want to, they're never going to try to repair it themselves. If they have a problem, they just want to bring it to a place, drop it off and say, my thing doesn't work. Make work now, please. Right. <laughs> That's all, you know, it's like your refrigerator. The refrigerator <laughs> is broken. You call the guy who comes to fix the refrigerator. Right. You know, that's that's all people want. They, they, you know, say, oh, I, I fix my refrigerator myself. You are not the majority. Refrigerators are made for people who just want it to work. And that's what computers are made for. And so they can make it sturdier, more reliable, less likely to be screwed up, fewer moving parts, fewer, you know, fewer things that can go wrong, fewer parts, period. That's why, how they want to make it. They are aiming for the current center of the market, which is not you. And the things they do to please those people really do please those people and don't please you. And as this article pointed out in Wired, uh, Apple has made user serviceable machines in addition to integrated ones. Like, because they made, you know, the, the G5 and, and, and I remember uh, the white LCD IMAX, like the big thing about them is everything is user replaceable, officially supported by Apple. You can replace anything in it, including even the screen. Isn't that crazy? Like they, they made both. They made sealed completely, you know, iPod type devices and iOS devices and, you know, all the way up to the Mac Pro where just the guts are out and you can do whatever you want. And consumers have consistently chosen the less serviceable ones and consumers, meaning the majority of the market, right? 
they, it's not as if Apple is doing this to spite people or to be mean. And in fact, Apple, because they are populated with geeks like the rest of us, has said, well, maybe we should make some expandable machines too. I mean, we should, like, let's make it easier to get the hard drive in and out of your laptops. I wish my laptop that I replaced the hard drive on, I wish it was the later model that, where they made it easier to get the hard drive in and out of it. Because it was a super pain to get this thing open, right? And they said, let's make it easier for these geeks or whatever. But the experiment they run in the market is they make expandable repairable and they make less expandable repairable and the less serviceable ones win. Uh, because they're cheaper, because they're thinner, because consumers don't care about this, whatever the combination is, like they've run the experiment and this is the result of it. Uh, so it's probably like, you know, like fighting back against the tide on all these issues, even on the things like recycling where they're gluing it in. Like they said, they're supposed to be so good about recycling, but they're gluing this battery in. And I talked to my friend in recycling who says that, they, that hurts recyclability. Maybe it does hurt recyclability, but like it, you know, from Apple's perspective, like if this makes it more solid feeling machine, uh, we think that our recyclers can figure out how to recycle it, or maybe when you when you bring your your Retina MacBook Pro back to the Apple Store, because apparently you can do this if you don't if you have Apple hardware that you don't want anymore, bring it back to the Apple Store and say I'm done with this one now, please take it from me, and they will. You hope they don't just put it into the garbage and go into the landfill. You hope they recycle it, and if they recycle it, maybe they defuse the batteries from the aluminum or the heat gun before they put them into separate recycling bins. Like I feel like this is a solvable problem. Uh, and the the meta problem there is like, should our stuff be disposable? Should should it be just like, oh, you buy it with the expectation that you're just gonna throw it away in a couple of years? And get, getting back to the Nexus Seven, four year lifespan, right? Uh, that's just it's programmed in. You're like, well, yeah, I buy it, but in four years, like, I'm sure this thing's gonna be dead. Something's gonna be broken. It's not gonna be worthwhile to repair. It, so I'll just buy a new one. And some people get upset about that idea that I'm gonna spend a thousand dollars on something and in four years, even if I want to keep using it, it's gonna be dead. Like the battery will be dead. The screen will be dying. Some part of it will fail. It'll be out of warranty. Uh, that is something that Apple ha- ha- is a challenge for them because if you bought a refrigerator and it died in four years, you'd be pissed, right? And those appliances cost similar amounts to computers these days. But we have an expectation. Like, I'm going to buy a fridge and this is going to last like, you know, 10 years, 20 years. And if it doesn't, I'm going to be annoyed about it and I'm not going to like that at all. Uh, shouldn't computers be the same way? If I'm going to trade all this repairability for something that's like a fridge, it's sealed, and when it breaks, I just have someone come and fix it for me, shouldn't it last a long time, too? Uh, there are two factors going against that. One is obviously, you know, the race of technology. The technology of computers is advancing much more rapidly than refrigerator technology. So even if your thing works perfectly after four years, you're probably going to want a new one. But what if you don't? What if you would like this one to keep working? I think Apple actually is working towards that by making things less repairable because they're trying to make fewer things that can go wrong. Fewer parts, fewer moving parts, definitely. I think they're trying to work towards something that after four years continues to work. And perhaps counterintuitively, the road to do that is by making things not more repairable so you can swap out parts, but making it less repairable in the same way that cars became less repairable because they're trying to increase reliability by just, you know, taking out as many variables as possible. Fewer connectors, fewer different compartments, fewer parts, everything. Just have it all sealed up, but have it run. You know, it's like the the old Honda ads or whatever. It's like you buy this car and you can weld the hood shut for 100,000 miles. <laughs> right. It doesn't even new oil. It will just run. Like you don't even have to look at it. Don't touch it. Don't think about it. It will just run. Uh, and Apple's not there yet and nobody is. But that, I think, is what they're working towards. The big handicap here, of course, is battery technology. Battery technology is is crappy. And there's just nothing you can do about it. It's just physics. Charge, recharge that battery. And after a couple of years, it's toast and you need a new one. Uh, Apple's current solution to that is not great. Their solution is if your battery is toast, 
bring it into the store, pay us some money, and we'll give you a new one. It's like, oh, but I would like it better if I could replace it myself. Well, before I went to WWDC, I had to buy a new uh, battery for this MacBook Pro that I'm sitting in front of, which is the pre, the last pre-unibody model, I think. Uh, and it's like, oh, you know, you got to pay Apple 200 bucks to replace your battery. Well, I had to buy 100 and something bucks to replace the battery in this. And yeah, I didn't have to bring it into Apple and lose it for a day. But it's still a pretty considerable investment. As long as it's possible and it's not so complicated, like, okay, battery technology is such that every four years I'm going to have to replace my battery. What do I have to do to make that happen? You just bring it to an Apple store, show it to the person and say, new battery, please. They charge you some money. You go away. You come back. It has a new battery. I think that is acceptable to most people. Uh, would they prefer it if you could swap a battery in normally? If you showed them what that machine had to look like and showed them the resulting battery life, I think most people would trade and they could voted with their wallets when they sealed in the battery and got a little bit better battery life, but it got a little bit thinner, a little bit more sturdy. People like that. And, you know, if, if those models didn't sell well, if MacBook Airs didn't sell well, like people are voting with their wallets and, and their feet and they are they are causing Apple's hardware to evolve as much as Apple itself is causing the evolution. But, you know, so. these these laptops are making more money than ever. They're selling more than ever. People, the kind of people who don't care about this, are voting for Apple to continue to do this. They are, they are voting, and these laptops continue to outsell previous generations, each, each generation. And each generation becomes more and more closed and less replaceable and repairable. And people are saying... We like them. Keep making them this way. If people really were, you know, the, the, this tiny, tiny majority of people who don't care or who do care rather about this kind of thing are, are if all of us, and I'm, I shouldn't say us because to be honest, I, I don't really care so much. I'm, I'm fine taking a laptop if it ever happens, taking it and getting the battery replaced the way Apple is suggesting we do it. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because I like the new devices that Apple is creating and I understand that these are the compromises that we have to make and I'm okay with it. And if I'm sorry if, you know, if that makes me a bad person in the eyes of the people who are saying, of course, every single component or component, as you say, should be replaceable inside of this computer. I don't feel that way anymore. I've built hundreds and hundreds of PCs and all of the components were replaceable. And I know because I replaced them, it was part of my job. And they were horrible. They were horrible. And right now, the Mac Pros that I have under the desk, the only things in there that I might ever want to swap out are going to be hard drives. And maybe I'll expand the RAM once in the lifetime of the machine, only because at the time that I got them, putting the RAM in them uh, from Apple was just too expensive. I might want to put in bigger hard drive. I might, well, yeah, I'll put in bigger hard drive. That's it. Like, I'm really glad that those days of being able to replace and swap things out are, are gone. What I, do I think, John, do I think it would be cool if this MacBook Air, this 11-inch MacBook Air had a little panel I could pop off and pop a new battery right on if this one ran out? I think that would be great. Would I be willing to have a heavier machine to make that possible? Well, no. Give me the lighter machine. Make it lighter. Less battery life. And, yeah. And I'll and I'll deal with that. Because I like I'm that's the compromise I'm I'm willing to make. I think what uh, people might be upset about though, John, is it is that they may feel that well, people don't know any better. They shouldn't just 
accept this Apple decision. They should they should revolt against it. They should demand replaceable batteries. But I think people really don't care. They just want something that's small and light, and the battery life certainly isn't bad. I mean, it's not like what they're basically saying is people should be like us. People should be like computer geeks, and the people who aren't, well, they just don't have enough knowledge. They're not knowledgeable enough. They should really only be buying cars with carburetors because fuel injectors are much more difficult to repair. Right. And they should not buy these cars that require a computer to, for you to hook up to it to adjust the engine computer and the oxygen sensor because that is really hard to repair. And if only people knew, they would know. If they knew, they would still choose. Like, you put the two computers next to each other. They want the one that's smaller, lighter, and they just don't consider repair an option the same way that they don't really care how easy their refrigerators to repair. Now, this this brings up an interesting side issue in that as computer hardware becomes more like cars are now, like, uh, you know, sealed up, people don't have the expectation they're going to do self-repair. Uh, people still want a reliable car. So look at ratings of like, you know, how reliable are they? How solid does it feel? And use whatever metrics that gauge like, oh, I bought one of these things and it kept breaking. And that is frustrating because... Uh, they just don't want to keep bringing it in for repair. It would, it would probably be frustrating if they could repair it themselves as well, but at least there would be something to make them feel better about it. But what this this kind of design trend brings you closer to is that now, now more than ever, and I felt this myself in my personal computer dealings, the uh, the concept of getting a lemon becomes relevant to computers. Right. Lemon is a term from the car world where you just happen to get a car and it just has problems. And it's not because... That, that model of car is inherently flawed. Just the one that you got when they, they, it was built on a Friday and people's minds were on the weekend and they just weren't paying attention and just like it wasn't assembled well and it's just full of problems. And every time you fix something, something else falls apart. And the only thing you can do about it, since there's no way you can repair this stuff, is to bring it into the dealer and they keep fixing it. And it's like, geez, I got a lemon. Uh, I, as someone who has dealt with computers and repair stuff, I felt that way. Yeah. Uh, I've always felt the way about laptops, but particularly for, you know, well, I guess Apple's laptops and any type of thing where when I get it, uh, it's kind of the, the confluence of uh, heat becoming a big issue in electronics, which wasn't a big issue when we started in this game, but rapidly became one. And uh, putting that into a small package such that it gets manufactured and they put in the heat pipes and they put in the thermal paste and they put in the fans and everything that is supposed to be designed to cool this thing is assembled in a particular way and God forbid that that assembly process did not go exactly right. Maybe there's a little air gap between the thermal paste. Maybe the fan has a little bum bearing and maybe some part of the, the heat removal system, just like it's not the design that's bad, it's just when this was manufactured, didn't quite get put together the right way. And that gives you a machine that overheats, that the fans get really loud on, that is just unpleasant to use. And you're like, geez, I got a lemon, right? It's not, you know, they're not all like this, uh, but this particular one has problems removing heat. And you know from your experience, like if I have to go inside there and open that thing up, there is no way I'm going to be able to reassemble that heat pipe <laughs> assembly in a way that is an improvement over this, this. You know, it's just like it has to be done in a factory on, you know, under ideal conditions. And if it goes wrong, you're screwed. And you're like, oh, just I wish I could throw this out and get a different one. Cause this one, you know, and that that's part of the experience of getting something that is they're trying to make it like so that nothing can go wrong and it's all sealed together and it's one big unit. Uh, but if you, you know, it, it increases your chances of getting a lemon because there's nothing you can do about it. And the thing, this is why I don't like laptops in general. The thing with anything that's like this, that's sealed up or whatever, is you just know opening up just makes it worse. Whether yeah. you do it or whether someone else do it. Like, just do not. It's got to, you know. It'll never the be the seal. same once it's been It'll opened never, up. Yeah. And the, the computer I'm in front of now, I open this thing up and return, replace the hard drive. And I can look and show you all around the outside of this thing of where, like, I nicked it with, like, whatever plastic spudger thing I was using to pry these pieces apart. Like, it's one-way assembly, and just opening it up at all is like, now it's ruined forever. 
Now, now I don't. Now we'll never be the same. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of depressing, and that's that's just part of you know. We we all want the best of both worlds. We want it to be infinitely repairable, and it always looks awesome. Uh, but it's also super reliable, and I don't have to worry about it. And uh, I think the big barrier to that so far is battery technology, because we know it's just built in. Physically speaking, batteries are going to wear out. There's nothing you do. But every other part you conceive of, let's make a CPU that runs forever. Let's make solid-state storage that runs forever. A screen that lasts forever. Backlights like LEDs can last a long time, right? But that battery, you know, there's no magic form. You know, people work on battery technology all the time. Uh, that's that's still the weak link. And But, you right, know, I mean, we've talked about batteries and stuff like that on this show before. And we know that at some point in the future, this will be a non-issue. I don't know how long. Who knows how long? I would love it if uh, one of the battery geeks in the audience could send us an email and, and say, here's where we can expect batteries to be in five years. But if you look at how far we've come in the last five years with batteries, just in five years, it's, it's amazing. And I think we'll get there. I think pretty soon we'll look back at this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I remember back, back when we used to care about things like batteries, and now they just last and last. I think the, our best shot in battery stuff is for the all of the components that need battery power to need far less of it. I think that's more likely to happen. So you're you're saying you're suddenly. saying screens that are more efficient and CPUs that are far more efficient, and that the yeah. batteries may never never get much better or won't need to because these other well, parts of the twice computer as good, work. three times as good, but they're not going to get ten times or hundred times as good in our life. And that's what we would need. What right? about like a mini fusion reactor in there, cold fusion? Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's going to fit. Yeah. So, uh, what about faster says, charging charging times? What if the batteries could just get really fast at charging? Yeah, that's, I'm just throwing you ideas. Got you got a physics thing there too. You got to transfer a certain amount of energy into a certain thing in a certain amount of time, and you end up with waste heat. And yeah, it's it's a tough problem. But uh, uh, Dushi in the chat room says that I, I mentioned that I don't like laptops, but I've been arguing for the laptop model for the last hour. I, I don't like laptops. <laughs> I don't. I would never buy laptops if I could help it because. I'm, I'm one of the computer geeks and I want, like, I, I know for, uh, the thing I just mentioned about getting a laptop where the heat removal assembly is not quite right. And that just, there's nothing you can do about it. And opening it up in any way is going to be a problem. That is much less likely to happen with a Mac Pro. Not, not the Power Mac G5 with the water cooling, which I avoided like the plague for exactly the same reason. But in general, if I can have a gigantic heat sink and huge fans with giant blades lazily spinning. Like, if they didn't seat that heat sink just right on the CPU, I'll probably be okay. Because it's so overkill with the cooling technology in those machines. And they have so much room instead of like, well, we've got about a centimeter underneath this keyboard in front of the screen by the Wi-Fi. You know, like, it's just so much tougher design challenge in a laptop that, yeah, I'm, I would like the one where I have the less of a chance of having a lemon. And, of course, I want the big video cards and all the other reasons I want a Mac Pro. Yeah. So that's why I avoid it. But I know I'm not the the market that they're selling to. Uh, now, but but to, speaking of reversals, though, the final bit I have on here is so this this uh, unfixable, unhackable, untenable article, and I mentioned about the three words: unfixable, mm, unfixable by you, probably. You're right. Unhackable, no, because once you get into hacking, you know you can take it apart, and anything that those guys in the back of the Apple Store are going to do, you could do. It's just a matter of getting the tools. It's just more difficult and more annoying, and you wish it wasn't glued down and blah blah blah. Untenable, totally not. You know, untenable means like it's not going to fly. No one's going to buy these things. 
I don't think that's the case. We'll wait for Apple sales numbers to find out, but we will find out if it's untenable. It's untenable for geeks, but geeks are not the market. Uh, but uh, on the flip side of that, uh, Koi Vin, whose blog I followed for many years, uh, had a blog post back in 2007 that I linked. When did I link that? I linked this on uh, episode five of Hypercritical, which was titled Slippery Little Pill, where I talked about this post from 2007 called Design Deterioration. And he talks about how he's disappointed that Apple hardware doesn't get nicer with age. He compared it to, you know, a cast iron pan that as you use it, it gets a patina and you become affectionate towards it. And it, uh, even though it doesn't look shiny and new, when it looks old, that's actually a nice look for it. And I talked a lot about that uh, in relation to Apple's iPods with their shiny backs and everything else. Uh, their slippery little pill exteriors. Uh, so he had a reaction to this iFixit article most recently. He did a follow-up called Built Not to Last, which is linked in the show notes. And then immediately a follow-up to that follow-up called Follow-Up to Built Not to Last, where he addresses uh, the disposability issue. The idea that when you buy something from Apple in particular, but he was just using it as an example, and you use it, that it slowly starts to you know, wear down. And it's kind of like a new car. The second you roll off the lot, it loses half its value. And the second your kid spills milk all over the back seat, and you know it's going to smell like sour milk for the rest of the life of this car. Like, <laughs> it, the, the, they, they don't age nicely. And that's a frustration for some people because uh, it, it makes them seem more disposable. People, people don't like that idea of, you know, again, it's getting back to the refrigerator. You buy a refrigerator and after four years, it's no good and you got to spend another thousand bucks. You're pissed off. It just seems wasteful. It seems wasteful to that you spend all this money and it's not useful anymore. And like, yeah, new technology comes out in computers, but what if the one I have is perfectly fine? Like what if, you know, my, my aunt is using it and she just browses the web and she doesn't need a new one, but oh, now she needs one because this one is just, you know, the hinge is getting loose and it's coming apart at the seams and it's all scratched up and it doesn't look nice. There's many different axes to this. One is actual reliability of things breaking, but the other one uh, that he talked more about in 2007 uh, and only a little bit now is that uh, if you can make the thing continue to work after four years, battery issues aside, I'm going to talk about desktops or, you know, if you put the battery issue aside, because there's nothing they can really do about that right now with technology available. But if you can make the rest of the thing work, like the hinge doesn't get too loose, the connectors don't break, uh, the seams don't start opening up or whatever, shouldn't it become, shouldn't it age gracefully and become, you should become more emotionally attached to it, kind of like you do with like an old car. Cars tend to age a little bit better in this way, like as long as they're not rusting out or whatever it gets kind of worn in and you kind of get used to your car and it looks a little bit more dingy and it doesn't look particularly stylish and it's not shiny anymore, but it has, you know, something that makes you have affection towards it. Whereas all of Apple's products are designed so that they look their best. The second you take them out of the box, when you peel off that little plastic that's all over it, that's the best those things are ever going to look. Don't touch it. Don't breathe it. Don't look on it. Don't put your greasy fingers on it. <laughs> it like this is the platonic ideal of a, a computing device untouched by human hands, beautiful, pristine, as it appears in all of Apple's marketing materials. When they show their devices, they show them being used by people, but they carefully buff off all the fingerprints. Like I always imagine like on those screens when they show someone sitting with an iPad in their lap and they take their finger and they casually say, yes, I will now browse this book and I will turn the page. And they turn the page with the, show the page curl thing with their finger, right? That's the first time that actor has touched that screen or if it's a real screen at all. And then after that take, they come and buff off where he just made that finger, you know, the finger smudge. And then the next one, because no one wants to see smudgy screens, right? Uh, and then, all of Apple's marketing materials like that. They're product shots. People think they're 3D renders and really they're just heavily retouched photographs with carefully composed lighting. 
Uh, and so that's how they're designed. They're designed to look beautiful in that way. And I don't think uh, this is all a repeat of episode five. I apologize, but episode five was a long time ago. Uh, but uh, so far, this continues to be the case that I don't think Apple is designing their devices so that they that they do appear nice after use. Uh, if Apple thinks that its devices actually do appear nice after use, uh, then they're not showing that in their ads. They're not saying. Look at our loyal customers. This guy's had an original iPad, iPod for years, and it scratched to hell, but we think it's still beautiful. Apple has not run that campaign yet. Uh, it may be the case, as I argued in, in Hypercritical 5, that Apple itself believes that, that Steve Jobs, who's not with us any longer, but he truly believed that massively scratched, mirror-finished, stainless steel back of an iPod looks awesome. I bet some people listening to this think that looks really cool, that it's like a badge of honor, and they do feel affectionate towards their thing. But most people seem not to that stuff gets scratched up and they feel like they need a new one uh, and a lot of that has to do with just the material people don't like scratches and a lot of that has to do with apple's advertising because everything they advertise is shiny and new uh this gets back to disposability because that's another reason people might feel dissatisfied with their old device old device like why did apple have to make this thing so shiny and crisp and sharp edged and mirror finish that after i use it for four years it just looks like hell and I would like to keep using it and like I would be willing to get a new battery, but it just looks terrible to me. Like everything still works well, but I'm dissatisfied with it because it's not making me happy like it did the day I took it out of the box and peeled off the static cling clear plastic stuff. Uh, and so he got a lot of the reason he did a quick follow up is because he got a lot of feedback and like people are saying, that's not how this stuff works. Like there's no way you can make something that, you know, it's not it's not a cast iron pan. It's always going to start looking dingy after a while. It's just this. You know, or, or the other one was like, you keep complaining about Apple. Well, show me an example of someone who does better, which I don't think is unfair because even in the original article, he says he believes that Apple is the best in the industry. This He just thinks it's not good enough. And I fall down in the same way. It's not about like oh, Apple's Apple's doing this, but Dell does much better. Uh, I think Apple does this better than anybody. But you know, the, other, the other thing that people were saying is, okay, so show me an example of any electronic product that's like this. If you, you know, I don't think this is possible for electronics, period, because of the nature of electronics. This thing you're asking for is crazy. Show me an example of any electronic device that ages in this way that you want because it seems like your demands are unreasonable and stuff like that can only work with like kitchen knives and pots and pans and maybe even cars, but certainly not electronics. Uh, and he had, you know, that's why he did the follow-up post and he replied to people on Twitter. And my response to, I was sort of engaging in this on Twitter as well. My response is the best example of how to do this is Apple itself because Apple itself has taken the technologies it uses to manufacture its products and looked at the, the aspects of them that make that don't hold up with age. Well, they used to make their laptops out of plastic, out of many different pieces. But over the years, those pieces would start, you know, start to get looser, and they would rub against each other. And you'd pick up the, a laptop by the corner and it'd go, it'd be like squeaky. <laughs> yeah, that's not nice. Uh, the, the the white plastic would start to yellow from like the, the oils in your right, hand. Sure. The, the little the little plastic would start to crack and chip off. The pieces would separate from each other. The paint came off the tie books or the titanium yep. uh, power book uh, yep. G4s. The paint flaking off them because they couldn't get the paint to seal onto the magnesium and titanium frame on the outside and that would look bad. And so what Apple has done is systematically look at the things that fail on its laptops and try to make them better. Oh, well, our matte finished screens, if you get a nick in those, it's a big deal. And they're really hard to clean. We'll put glass over it. Glass is sturdy. Glass is harder to scratch. Glass is easier to clean. Our, our notebook exteriors, uh, no matter how well we make them, 
they tend to like start creaking over time and things can separate and things can discolor or well, discolor forget about plastic everything is aluminum it's much more resistant to discoloring it's anodized right very uniform appearance our track pads made of plastic you ever seen a, a plastic track pad they get so dingy and disgusting looking and just smudging everything we're gonna make the track pad out of glass much sturdier that the, the laptop case let's machine it out of a single piece of aluminum no seams no seals anywhere like they're doing the thing that Koivin and I are, are talking about they're doing it themselves and they're doing it better than anybody why do they have unibody why is it aluminum and glass all these reasons is because they wanted to make something that wears better with age now where they're still falling down is what they're trying to do and this is kind of admirable and I respect it but it's also you know kind of fighting back against the tide is to say our solution is not to make something that ages well our solution is to make something age-proof. Like, this thing is going to look... If we're trying to make something that looks as awesome four years from now as it does the day you get it. We'll make it like... Make it out of adamantium. Make it impervious <laughs> to any possible damage, staining... And that is admirable. And they're doing a hell of a job. Like, in terms of solidity, when you pick up, you know, like, say you have a 13-inch MacBook Pro a unibody, like the first one, I bet that still feels pretty damn solid today when you pick it up. Like no creaks or anything because that solid piece of aluminum, boy, that was a great solution. And same thing with the glass. It's easy to clean, takes repeated cleanings well, doesn't scratch easily. You know, uh, you've got a glare problem and everything, but I think it's pretty sturdy. Uh, But they're not saying we're going to acknowledge that these things are going to physically age and we're going to use materials that that uh, you get a patina, so to speak, that that uh, they get character with age. Hmm. They're still saying we're going to make something that we believe they look best when they come out of the box and we're going to make something that looks the most like it did when it came out of the box four years from now. Uh, I think there's a limit. Maybe there's a limit to that thing. Maybe there's not. Maybe they will, you know, make them out of nano machines that will self-repair and the things will look as beautiful as the day you bought it forever and ever. Uh, but I, I think this is an ongoing struggle and it's related to reliability and stuff, but not in the way people think. Because like, aren't you, you know, aren't you arguing for geek perspective this thing should be you know awesome and rugged and reliable and last forever instead of throwing it away i think both these things can happen at once like the, the thing that the thing that brought them the uh resistance to age related ailments is also the thing that's sealed in the battery the unibody case no more battery door no more lots of pieces all one piece seal it all in that brought them a device that ages well and also brought them a device that you can't, you know, you aren't expected to replace the battery. Like these things are going together. And I think they are, even though they seem in opposition, they are both going towards the same place, which is a rugged, reliable thing with few moving parts that lasts a really long time and that is, is good looking and pleasing to the customer for as long as they uh, ever want to use it. Uh, I think that's what Apple's moving towards but we are certainly in a transitional period, transitioning away from kind of a stable period of where we have the expectation of a computing device is what it's a desktop or a laptop. It has these characteristics and this is what we're all used to. We're clearly in a transition period where what the heck a computer is, is changing phones, tablets, replacing PCs and the laptops and stuff like laptops coming to dominate over desktops and laptops themselves starting to become more sealed up and more like, you know, the iOS devices and the tablets. Sealed up. Yep. So that's what we should do with this show is seal it up, I think. Seal up the show. Yep. 159.23, Mark. <laughs> all right. So 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 74 if you'd like to see all those links that John has curated for your uh, listening enjoyment. John is available to be followed on Twitter. Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. There's no Z in that. Uh, on Twitter, I'm Dan Benjamin. On Twitter, I'd like to thank you very much for listening to the show. 
We'll be back next week. Thanks very much to our sponsors for making possible. If you'd like to send us uh, your thoughts and comments, you can do so by going to 5x5.tv slash contact. And uh, there will be a little uh, drop-down list there. You can choose this show, Hypercritical, from that list, and that will promptly send us an email. John reads them all. He may not respond ever, but he will certainly take them under advisement. And I think that's all. That's it, John. So too. All right. Well, have a good week. You too.